Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am pumped today because I have been trying to get this guest that I have in front of me right here into the show for, I'm going to say, a year and a half. He was one of the first people that I ever wanted to have on the show because what I love about him is he is not only a great, great leader of men and women, but he's also a phenomenal artist. And I know sometimes he doesn't think of himself as an artist. He thinks of himself more as an executive producer, producer, director. But I assure you, he is an artist. And everybody he directs, I know he has a kindred spirit with inside him. And I'm talking about Joel Gallon, who is sitting across from me, who I have known I think my entire career, way back from when I was in New York, hanging out at the Cosmic Diner on 57th and Broadway underneath MTV, which was above the Coliseum Books building on 57th and Broadway around the corner from the Hard Rock Cafe. And oftentimes I would see him there. And then the MTV building, I believe, moved down to Times Square. But before that, I saw him a lot with his cast of characters. But I think before I start this cold open, I want to just say thank you all very much. You guys have been amazing. And I know I'm a broken record, but I just can't believe how wonderful it's been. And this is going to make you laugh, maybe. But I spoke to a rabbi. I guess you'd call him my rabbi. 
And I spoke to him this morning. He said, what are you doing that makes you happy? Well, I said, I'm doing these podcasts and they're really wonderful. And I feel like I'm able to give something back. And he said, Barry, I just want to let you know something. They're giving back to you just as much as you're giving to them. I said, I don't understand. He said, Barry, you cannot give anything unless somebody is willing to receive it. And the people who are willing to receive it are the ones that are giving back to you. So everybody who listens, they're giving it back to you when they comment, when they write you a letter, when they email you. That's fulfilling you and you're fulfilling them. And it's true. You guys are unbelievable. You send so many amazing messages and I am so grateful. I'm also grateful for you using the Amazon banner on the BarryCats.com website. Again, it doesn't cost you anything extra and it helps the BarryCats Jewish Boy College Fund, as I say. So I look at Joel Gallen and I always do this. I always look at my guest and I never know what I'm going to say. And I like to tell a story that sort of has a six degrees of separation, which I normally do later in the show, to the guest. And for those of you who don't know, and I'll share this in my introduction of Joel, he's produced the last 12 Comedy Central roasts. And I have a lot of stories I could tell around the roast. A lot of things that people don't know about me and the roast. One thing I'll tell everybody that you don't know is myself and a young comedian named Jeffrey Lipschultz used to hang out at the Friars Club in New York City. And Jeff was an old soul and he had a great relationship with them. And Jeff and I, which many people don't know this, we went to Comedy Central and we pitched them the roast with Jean-Pierre and the late Alan Kirschenbaum's father. And we went to Comedy Central and we pitched the roast. And even though we didn't even know what we were doing and I never produced anything in my life and I never had brokered anything like that in my life, we brought it there and they bought the roast and they did the first roast with Drew Carey and next with Jerry Stiller until the Friars Club couldn't accommodate Comedy Central and give them the young people they wanted to accommodate all the older comedians and it wasn't Comedy Central's demo. And that was back before I really knew what I was doing. So that's why I'm not an executive producer on the roast. That's why I don't have a stake in the roast. But Jeffrey and I brought them there. And for those of you who don't know who Jeffrey Lifschultz is, his middle name, Ross, Jeffrey Ross, the roast master who has been on every single roast that Joel Gallen has done. And Joel Gallen has rewarded him as well as Comedy Central with a spot on those roasts probably until he dies. And so that's nice. But the story I think I want to tell, and I might have shared bits and pieces of this, I was representing a young comedian who I met at the Sundance Film Festival when she was a correspondent. She wasn't an actress, she wasn't a writer, she wasn't a comedian, but I shook her hand and as I often do what happens to me, this dead zone thing, I shook her hand and Jay Moore who was there told me that he felt something too about her. And I said, you know, you could be a writer, you could be an actress, you could be a comedian, you could be anything you wanna be. I would love to represent you. And that was Whitney Cummings. And 
she started doing stand-up. She started doing a lot of things. And what I noticed about Whitney Cummings more than anything else is that she seemed to work harder than anybody else I'd ever seen in my life. I mean, from the beginning of the morning when she woke up until 2 o'clock in the morning, she'd be working. I often visualized her with her phone inside of a Ziploc bag in the shower or the bathtub because that's the way she was. But she had a goal of wanting to do the roasts. And I said, well, why don't you write some material? We'll submit it to Joel and Comedy Central. Because one of the things you always do, which is very strange with the Comedy Central roast, if you just send something to Comedy Central and you don't send something to Joel, not good. You're not going to get your person on the roast. You're not going to get them. I don't care if they're the greatest artist in the world. Consequently, from a navigational standpoint, sadly, if you submit something just to Joel and not to Comedy Central, not good. You're not going to get anybody in either. You have to sort of navigate the dual constraints of both personalities and make it happen. And I submitted some material to Joel and Comedy Central for Whitney. And finding women who can write roast jokes, first of all, finding anybody who can roast is one of the hardest things in the world because it's a different kind of muscle as a stand-up comedian. It's literally like swimming a mile and running a mile. It's the hardest things to be able to do both because they're different muscles. In my opinion, that's why Jeffrey Ross does the roast every year. Not just because Joel Gallen is loyal to Jeffrey Ross, not because Comedy Central is loyal to Jeffrey Ross, but because he's one of the few guys who can bring it every year. And I think if Jeff were sitting here, he might say, hey, you know, I don't have the best set every year, but, you know, add them all up together and a decathlon and I'm up there. And so Whitney got a job writing on the roast. And I remember she wrote a rap for Snoop Dogg and Snoop Dogg went on and fucking destroyed the place. And Joel would even agree, had the best comedy set of any comedian or anybody that roast. And this guy was so high he could barely walk, yet he delivered this great routine. And that put Whitney in line for the chance to possibly be on camera. But I kept asking people to give her a shot to be on camera, including Joel. And there's a lot of people in line. So you always are going to get the no. It's not an indictment of Joel or Comedy Central. It's just like, hey, she hasn't done anything before. You don't even have a tape. And so I got a lot of rejections from Comedy Central. But Doug Herzog had been a friend of mine for a long time, the first guest on this podcast that I ever had. I asked a favor of all people, Tom Arnold, to let me have her perform on a roast of Peter Berg at a benefit. She did it. It was great. I sent it again against my better judgment, and it's not something that will ever help you in life always to do this, but when you're representing an artist, you have to fight for the artist. And I'd already experienced all the no's. So I sent the video just to Doug Herzog. I didn't send it to Joel Gallen. I didn't send it to all the executives at Comedy Central in charge, which is against everything I just told you guys to do. But when you've gotten no's from everybody, desperate Times call for desperate measures. And I knew that 
what's the worst thing that could happen? Joel's going to be mad at me for a year. Comedy Central is going to be mad at me for a year. But the best thing that could happen is maybe she'd get the gig. And what happened was Doug saw it. And as I remember an assistant telling me who worked there, who shall remain nameless, they said that Doug sent it to everybody with a caption on the email that said, why don't we book women like this on our roast? And I got the call that she was going to be booked on the roast of Larry the Cable Guy. She was so excited, but the way the business works, sometimes great times don't last long. And we have the commitment, everything's great, and then I get the call. Six weeks, eight weeks before, Barry, we're sorry. We can't use her for the roast. It's not going to happen. I said, what do you mean it's not going to happen? You gave the commitment that it's going to happen. Barry, it's not going to happen. I said, well, that's not fair. I mean, you have to at least give her the next roast or something. And they gave her the next roast of Joan Rivers. Presumably because Larry the Cable Guy had his own people that he wanted and he didn't want her, but I don't know the facts of that. So what I want to tell you guys is that Whitney Cummings went on the Joan Rivers roast and one of her first lines was, Joan, you look great. I loved you in The Wrestler. And then she went on to completely annihilate that night and do something that every artist or everybody in business, including Joel Gallen, needed to do early on. It doesn't matter that you get a big break. That's wonderful. But that doesn't ensure you anything. You have to go on and you have to exceed everybody's expectations. And you have to blow everybody away so that everybody in that venue knows that you stole the roast, including Jeffrey Ross, who would take me aside and say, boy, she really killed it. And after that, Comedy Central was riding around in a golf cart. We got the call that they wanted to do a deal for her own show. We got an hour special. They only wanted to give her a half hour, but we held out for an hour, and that was her first hour special. And then she did several other roasts after that. There have been many people that Joel has seen go through the roast that have come on for the first time, and they come and go. But the big thing that I wanted to share with you guys is, yes, as a manager, it's wonderful to turn the no's into yeses. And it's wonderful to try to figure out how to keep the relationships after you go a certain way and try to do something to help an artist. But whenever you help artists as a manager, you're always going to be stained in some way because you're fighting for them hard. And you're going against the traditional model of how things are supposed to be. But then if you are an artist or anybody working out there in the workforce, when somebody does fight for you or mentor you or give you the shot, you have to go in there and you have to blow people the fuck away. And then when you blow them away, you'll be able to do anything you want, how you want to do it, when you want to do it. And it's true to form with Joel Gallen, who's sitting across from me, and Whitney Cummings. Whenever Joel has had the opportunity to do something, even when he might have thought he wasn't as deserving, 
he always delivered to the highest level. You don't produce and direct 12 years of a roast. Make no mistake about it. Comedy Central, they can hire anybody they want. They can do whatever they want. They could get a crew in much cheaper than Joel. Look, Kimber Rickenbaugh and Paul Miller did 15 years of the Comedy Central half hours. But one day the call came and they weren't doing them anymore. But he still does them. And Whitney is still doing specials, still doing great things. And it's a testament to the whole situation, how the business works in every capacity. So there is a lesson anybody here. You got to make your mark when you're given that opportunity because you never know when the opportunities are going to come and you never know when the next one's going to come. So when you get it, there's going to be a lot of people around you in the workplace that have a lot more experience than you, a lot more drive, a lot more desire, but you got to figure out a way to be better than all of them. And if you do that, you'll have the kind of career that Whitney Cummings and Joel Gallen have. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas 
to help them get where they needed to go. And he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. It will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in. I will FaceTime you in and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. I'm so excited. I'm here next to the incredibly twisted artist that he is and the tremendous executive and person in the business of force, Joel Gallon. And I'm going to introduce him and hopefully he won't fall asleep like he did during my monologue. All right. Joel Gallen is an American television and film director, producer, screenwriter, and founder and president of 10th Planet Productions. Gallen has produced and directed many live events and has won numerous awards, including an Emmy Award, Peabody, PGA, and DGA Award for producing and directing one of the most amazing events in the history of television. America, a tribute to heroes immediately following the 9-11 attacks. Gallen was an executive at MTV in the early 90s where he created and produced a number of popular shows and specials, including the MTV Movie Awards. He went on to produce 14 of the first 15 Movie Award shows between 1992 and 2006. He also conceived and directed many of the movie award short comedic films during that period that were the precursor to viral videos today. And if you still watch them and go on YouTube, they will blow you away just as much as anything you'll ever see today. And the people that he had in these short films, <laughs> Ben Stiller, Tom Cruise, Jack Black, Will Ferrell, Justin Timberlake, Jimmy Fallon, Vince Vaughn, and many others. No one could ever accuse Joel of not knowing great talent. He produced a short film for Zoolander while producing the VH1 Fashion Awards in the late 90s and executive produced the movie for Paramount in 2001. He directed the hit comedy Not Another Teen Movie for Sony Pictures that same year. He is best known, however, in my mind right now as the executive producer and director of the last 12 Comedy Central roasts including the most recent one with Justin Bieber. He's directed and produced 17 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremonies between 93 and 2014, and executive produced and directed the multiple Emmy-winning 25th anniversary Rock and Roll Hall of Fame concert at Madison Square Garden in 2009. From 2007 through 2010, Gallen was the executive producer and director also of the CNN Heroes. He executive produced and directed the last two stand-up the cancer live multi-network broadcast in 2012 and 2014, 
And in 14, the broadcast raised more than $100 million for new clinical trials. He also produced and directed the concert for Valor for HBO in November of 2015, held on the Mall in Washington, D.C. Gallen was the executive producer of the two primetime reality competition series, The Sing-Off, an acapella competition series for NBC, and America's Best Dance Crew, a dance competition series for MTV. And in 2015, Gallen executive produced the 30th Independent Spirit Awards show. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest, really an honor and an amazing man, and I'm so, so proud and happy to have him here, Joel Gallen. Happy to be here, Barry. Thanks for inviting me. Are you okay? Whenever I'm around you, you always seem like you're having a day from hell. I am having a day uh, from hell today, but I'll just keep that to myself. But I'm, I, I know that it's been a long time. You've invited me several times, and I've been trying to get here, and I didn't want to postpone it any further. So uh, in any form or fashion, I'm glad to be here. One of the things about you that I know about you, and you're probably going to jump right up and be like, oh, God, do we have to talk about this? But I don't care because I'm going to say it because I love my family and I love my boys. And one of the things that I have a kindred spirit with you about is I know that you are a really, really strong family man and you are an enormous influence in your child's life. And I always respected you for that because a lot of people don't understand when they're meeting with people or what they're doing or how they're doing. They don't understand what might be happening with that person that day. But I happen to know that you have a huge responsibility in your personal life and that you really are dedicated. And that always makes me happy when I see you because I know that about you. But a lot of people don't understand. So when they have you come to a room or something, they don't know what happened that day or how things were, if somebody was sick, or you had to bring somebody here, because I know that it's all on you. And I just want you to know that I think about you and I respect you for that. Well, I appreciate that. And as a matter of fact, that is why I was late today, because my son was home from school, Max. And uh, I feel like whatever he has, I'm starting to come down with. So, but thank you for saying that Max is a very important part of my life, the most important part of my life. And, uh, I'm his number one fan and uh, his, his good friend and supporter and cheerleader. So I appreciate that you've noticed that. And, uh, um, and it's certainly um, it's one, of, one of the, I think, good things about having a, a child a little bit later uh, in life and a little bit later in my career, uh, because if I had my son, you know, maybe earlier when I was in the middle of my workaholic phase, which I sort of still am, but I've... I've, I've uh, backed it off a little bit, I, I probably would have missed a lot of important things and, uh, and, and, and missed some really special moments in his life. And, you know, now that I've, you know, been able to sort of take, you know, on projects only the ones that I really want to do and that I'm really passionate about and really pick and choose them, it gives me, it affords me the time to spend a lot of quality time with my kid and really appreciate and really, you know, value every moment, you know, because, you know, it goes fast. You know, my son was three yesterday and he's 11 today. So it is, it is flying by, and uh, um, I'm grateful that uh, I'm able to spend the amount of time that I am able to spend with him. What shows do you let him watch that push the limit? Well, he loves Saturday Night Live. I mean, this is a kid that can't wait to wake up on Sunday mornings because obviously he can't stay up late on Saturday night. 
Uh, and he just like at seven o'clock in the morning, he'll wake me up and said, can I, can I, cause it's always on the DVR. Can I start watching Saturday Night Live? And I, you know, now I let him watch it. It used to be, I'd watch it with him. So I'd fast forward through inappropriate sketches cause there always are a handful. Uh, but now I, I feel like he gets it and he understands it's all for the sake of comedy, but uh, he pretty much is a student of Saturday Night Live right now. And the old shows too. He loves when he sees that at 10 o'clock, sometimes on Saturday nights, NBC runs some of the old classic shows and on YouTube, he catches them. So um, he he knows and he's very, he has an incredible uh, uh, memory uh, for, for comedy and for music. And he could remember, he'll watch like an Adam Sandler bit a couple times and then he'll, he'll remember the entire bit and he'll just recite it to whoever wants to listen. Um, you know, so he, he really, I don't think he wants to be a comedian or a performer, but he does like being funny. I don't want to talk so much about family. I want sure. to talk about your career. Sure. I want to talk about everything, but I wanted to let you know that there's also something about you. The elephant, the room for me always, what I've always felt about you is that there's a darkness about you. <laughs> you know how certain people, they walk in the room and it's like, ah, everything's going to be okay. Happy, sunlight, shining. And you're always the kind of guy who walks in the room and it's almost like pig pen. You got that cloud that's sort of like that dark artist cloud around you. A thunderstorm, yeah. Do you notice it about yourself? Yes. And what is that? Well, I think it's just I'm fiery. You know, I'm fiery. I'm passionate. You know, I'm a perfectionist. So uh, I think that everything is for the love of what I'm doing. But uh, I will stop at nothing to accomplish, you know, that final product needs to be, you know, as great as possible. And sometimes uh, my style of getting to the finish line doesn't sit with everybody, you know, the, you know, as well as others. Others who know me like you and respect me and, uh, you know, have seen my work, understand the process, as you refer to in, in your cold open, you know, I'm an artist. And I do agree. I am somewhat of an artist besides being just a producer and a director. And, um, and my process, although I think as I've gotten older and more experienced, I think I've mellowed out. Um, but I feel like my best work of my career is when I'm the most passionate and the most fiery and the most like, we got to get it done and we got to get it done this way. You know, it's like I get along the best with uh, network executives who agree with that. <laughs> because many don't. Many just want to give you notes and tell you to change this and change that just for the sake. And it's gotten me in trouble because many times they'll want to change. I'm not talking about Comedy Central, by the way. I'm talking about other networks who will make a show on producing or give notes and suggestions in a way that that just, to me, uh, reduces the quality of the program I'm producing. And that just frustrates me. And that usually leads to discussions and discussions lead to battles, and uh, and that's not good. You know, nobody wants to be battling. You know, while you're trying to you know do something that you love doing. Um, so it's it, it's um, so it's a it's a it's a constant struggle. Um, but um, like I said, you know, I I try. I'm definitely one of these people that I've never been able to be. There's a lot of producers in the in this town that could do three, four, five, six shows at a time. You know, again, I won't name any names, but people see their names in the credits all the time. How can they have the time to do the, all these shows? Because they're not really doing the shows. They have different people in the trenches doing it for them. And the shows, some are good, some aren't so good, some are mediocre, whatever. 
And I've always been that guy like, you know, if I'm hired to do the show, I'm in the trenches doing the show. I delegate and I have great people working with me, but, you know, that's just, that's just who I am. I just, I just like being immersed in the project and, and, and doing it a certain way. If you had to choose one person from behind the scenes that nobody listening would really know their name, but is your right-hand person, in other words, there's a draft for your shows and all of your people are out in the draft and you have to pick somebody, number one, who you always are going to have there on your show, who you can have that second hand with, who is it? It's without a doubt a guy named Rick Austin. You know, Rick uh, is an amazing, amazing talent. He and I have worked together since MTV. When I left MTV to start 10th Planet, I asked him to join me, and he did. We both moved to Los Angeles around the same time. And that was with Joel Stillerman as well, or just with you? Well, Rick really worked for me. You know, I hired Joel Stillerman to sort of run the studio, mm-hmm. and I was running the whole department, which for me was mostly the events, the live broadcasting and stuff. And Joel was in charge of the studio. Rick really worked with me on my shows, on my specials like the movie awards and the VMAs and and other big events. Uh, so, uh, you know, Rick and I have always worked together. Again, I wish I had the number, but I, I'm sure he's worked with me in, on over 100 shows, you know, maybe even 200 shows over the last, you know, 18, 20 years. And, um, and we're still working together. You know, he does all the roasts with me and he's done um, pretty much... Every one of the shows you mentioned in my intro, in my introduction. Has he ever come to you and said, Joel, I don't know how to tell you this, buddy, but you're wrong here. Absolutely. Listen to me and do it this way. Please listen to me. And you changed your whole direction and did it. Without a doubt. Uh, Especially I could think of times in the last, you know, three or four years where he's definitely pointed things out to me that, uh, uh, from his point, when I, when I saw his point of view, I felt like that was the right direction or certain ways I was approaching things that probably wouldn't have gotten us uh, to as good a final product as doing it his way. And at the same time, it's a give and take. Sometimes he's doing cer- certain things a certain way and I have to point things out to him, uh, you know, to get him uh, and I to be, you know, achieving that synergy that when we do achieve it, you know, we are uh, a pretty uh, dynamic duo. Has he ever said to you one time, Joel, can you give me one? Can you just give me one to do? And you just come in, you direct, and you go, and let me take this one from cradle to grave. Will you let me have one? He doesn't have to ask me that because it's already happened oh, okay. uh, You know, a few times and, uh, and will happen again in the future. The one that comes to mind that was Rick Austin, you know, driving creative force through the from start to finish was that uh, beautiful tribute to Greg Giraldo. After he passed away, there was a 90-minute sort of documentary special on Comedy Central. I was the executive producer. Rick was the producer, but Rick was the guy who really put that show together from start to finish. And I thought it was just an amazing show. Awesome. That makes me very happy because a lot of times when I – sit across from you or I talk to you, I feel like I'm talking to Jerry Bruckheimer <laughs> because I'm talking to a guy who literally is the number one guy at the top and then there's nobody else. There's this big gap between people below him. Right. And that makes me feel good that that's the way it is. And by the way, there are a handful of other people that we won't go into now because we don't have time, but there are 
other people that are, you know, just one step removed from a Rick Austin, uh, you know, that I've been very loyal to and they've been very loyal to me over the last 20 years. Like so, people who started as interns and now are producers? Uh, uh, yeah, like, you know, there's a, there's a guy right now named Kevin Browse who's been working for me for about seven years who was my assistant who um, is a, a an amazing uh, worker who will do anything for me night and day, seven days a week. And and, uh, you know, handles all the post-production, but he does a lot of the producing also and coordination and logistics and, uh, you know, maybe even eight years now, I, I, you know, he, um, he's been uh, a bull. You know, he just gets it done and, and, and never complains, is the greatest personality. And uh, I, I'm very, I feel very blessed that he still works for me um, because, you know, there's always issues and conflicts and things like that. And, and there's definitely, you know, tons of other people. Um, that uh, that I bring in on a project by project basis, but uh, like I said, many many of which ha- I've worked with for the better part of twenty years. When's the last time you took a note from a network executive? I just lived through a, a series of notes. So with Fox, I did a pilot called The Biggest Laugh, actually, which is a uh, was a sketch comedy competition series that we actually sold to ABC, almost sold to ABC three years ago when Corey Henson was an executive at ABC. And then about a year ago, it, it never happened. We got it to like the one yard line, never happened. And then, and then she came over to Fox and contacted me and said, you know, I still love that show. Pitch it to Fox. I repitched it to Fox. And now they said, okay, let's do a pilot. And I had never done a pilot before for a competition show because to me, you have, the, you have this whole structure where there's, there's, there's competition, there's performances, somebody gets eliminated, there's a whole arc to it. So when I had done Sing Off and America's Best Dance Crew, I always got a greenlit right to series. So this was a little bit of a different approach, but, you know, certainly was not going to turn down the opportunity to do a pilot like this for uh, Fox. But yes, there was a lot of um, notes and a lot of discussion about how to do the show. And I was on my best behavior. I was doing this with Sony. Did that surprise you? Yes. Well, I, I felt I felt like I had to because the last project I had done with Sony was the sing-off, and I was getting noted to death, and that never leads to anything. Uh, you know, that leads, like I said before, it leads to discussions, which leads to battles, and that's never fun to to work in that environment. So for this show, I decided that uh, yes, I will make my opinion heard. But I'm not going to push it. Like if Fox, in this case, the networks wanted me to go in a certain direction, I'm going to go in that direction, no matter what. You know, even you know, I'll I'll make sure they know my opinion. And I'll make sure they know I'm not so sure about it. But if that's what you want, I'm going to do it, which is not what I usually do. So I did it, and uh, the show did not get picked up. And I'm not saying it's because I did it, but I am saying that um, there were a lot of issues. Uh, uh, you know, creative discussions that, again, if I had my druthers, uh, would probably have gone uh, a little bit differently. We wanted the show to be as funny as possible. But at the end of the day, if the sketch groups aren't really funny, the show's not going to be great. And there, were, there just aren't a lot of hilarious sketch comedy groups. There are some. The really good ones, though, aren't going to do this show because they're waiting for Lauren Michaels to make the call. Um, and that's the first line of, uh, of differences between the network and the producer is the casting. You know, you look at 100 sketch groups from across the country, you know, you know no way you're going to agree. So the five groups that made it, I agreed with two of them, maybe three, but, you know, the two groups that got in, there are two groups that got in that probably shouldn't have gotten in, you know, and, and there are a lot of groups that were 
maybe better and funnier, in my opinion, that should have got in that maybe would have made a difference. But like I said, I think the pilot probably is a C. And if I had total control, probably would have been a B. It never would have been an A. Now, earlier in the cold open, I did something that I'm sure the hair on the back of your neck did stand up when I compared you to Whitney Cummings. And I want to clarify my comparison. My comparison to you with Whitney Cummings is twofold. Number one, a tireless worker, just to the end, like a perfectionist to the end and driven like no other person you could ever imagine. And number two, seizing an opportunity that was given to them and riding the bull for as long as you can with your work ethic. So those are the two ways I wanted to clarify that because for our audience, when an artist gets a roast and does well, there's this weird thing that happens in any situation with talent. When they come in, they're at the lowest rung. And then you kill. And then the network is all over you. And then you're asked to do it the next year. The relationship between Mr. Gallon and the talent is not that way anymore. So if you had a suggestion for Whitney or anybody coming in who became a monster on the roast the second year, that is the same way that you feel when you get a note from a studio. And it creates a difficult situation for a producer to be talent friendly, keep the relationship with the talent because you feel as an artist that you know what's going to be best for the show. Yet the talent feels this sense of new juice and Hulk-like strength because they delivered and now they feel that they can do more of what they want. So in times when I've had certain artists on the roast, there's a reason why I think Jeffrey Ross works so well with you because he's a great navigator. Yes, he's been upset with you. Yes, you've had arguments. Yes, there's been difficult times. Very few. Very few. But the fact is, Jeff knows how to take a note like you took yours at Fox. He knows how to adjust, make you happy, and do his own thing. But a lot of artists, when they get to a certain stage, they don't know how to do that. They have sensitive skin. They take it personally. And relationships aren't as strong as they were in the beginning because they just don't understand that it's business and that this is a process and don't take everything personally. Does that bother you that you have to sometimes deal with certain artists that you see in a certain way and then everything's fine and then they get a little steam behind them and then they're not listening as much. They're not taking the notes. They're complaining. They're creating problems. They're making things difficult. Because I find as a manager, it's this thing that is so difficult to deal with to balance the relationship with somebody like yourself, who I have so much respect for, and somebody like Doug Herzog, although he's overseeing seven networks now at the time, he was a big part of it. And then you have the artist who's relying on you to fight for them. And it rarely seems to end as well as I want it to end. How do you handle those things with artists when they just complicate winning? Well, I, I have to be honest, I haven't had that experience that often. You know, yes, there's been 
one or two occasions that this has happened, especially on my comedy shows, and in both cases, they were your clients, Barry. So I think there might be a pattern here. So but, it's me. So uh, that's probably why it took a year and a half to get you here, because I'm not on the blame. But seriously, the two people, and I have total respect for both of them, and I, and, uh, I, I feel like I have a good relationship with both of them now, but where there were little humps that we had to get over. I mean, one was Dane Cook. You know that story well. Dane Cook in Las Vegas with yeah. a special with Dave Attell called the Insomniac Tour. And the other one was Whitney Cummings. But the Dane Cook story uh, to this day is still puzzling for me because I love Dane Cook. I, and I, I was a big fan. And we were doing a, uh, um, the Insomniac Tour special for Comedy Central. Lauren Correll brought me in for it. Uh, Dave Attell. It was Dane Cook. It was Greg Giraldo. And somebody else. It was a young comedian from Texas, Sean Rouse. And so what was the issue here, before you start with the story, in my perspective, is that Dane at the time was doing a few arenas, was blowing up, and Natel had done like five or seven years on Insomniac, and he's just sure. an amazing talent. And Geraldo, always an unsung hero, and we'll talk a little bit about that, about how certain artists... They become self-destructive, but they're geniuses and brilliant, and they just can't push through to the level that you know that they know they're capable of and everybody in the world knows. But there was also this young guy who wasn't, it was like one of these things is not like the other. He didn't technically, it made no sense why he was on the show with those three, maybe from a producer standpoint it did. And so I think Dane was coming in at the point, like I said, when things are blowing up and going crazy and he's agreeing to do this show with Dave because for those of you listening Dave Attell is like God to comedians I mean they love him if you go into any show where Dave Attell goes on stage in any club comedians will be running from the other room to the back of the room and anybody will want to work or do anything with him and the Dane was no exception yeah, I'll try to be brief on the story, but essentially a week before in Los Angeles, uh, these guys did a show, uh, just sort of a warm-up show for the show that we were going to film in Las Vegas. And uh, Dane uh, went in there and, um, and did his um, Price is Right set that just crushed. You know, I was in hysterics. The, the entire place was, was, was laughing their asses off. And, uh, and that was great. And I was very excited. And we we go a week later to Vegas. We go to film it, and Dane comes out uh, to close the show. Attell had him close the show. And you did two shows. We did two shows at the House of Blues, and uh, Dane comes out and does um, you know a relatively solid set, but never gets into this eight minute section of his set that he showed us the week before, because I figured you know he he showed it to us. He saw it killed, and that was the reason he was doing his set the week before. It was like. I'm, I'm trying out the material. And the, usually when comedians try out the material, the material that kills gets put into their set that's going to be filmed for a television show. That's the way I understood it usually. Anyway, he doesn't do any of this material. And, uh, and I thought his set could have benefited from it. I didn't say his set was bad. I thought his set was good, but I thought his set could have been great. You know, and I thought adding that material would have been, uh, you know, the icing on the cake. And so I, uh, there was a little after thing at, uh, some room at the House of Blues. I remember seeing you uh, at the after show um, party of some sort. And I talked to you about it first. And you said, well, talk to Dane about it. And I did encourage you to talk, yes. which is very rare for me to do. Sure. 
But I did that because, again, I consider you an artist. And ordinarily, if it was just a producer who I didn't consider an artist, I would be the liaison 99 out of 100 times. But I felt coming from me, as much as a great relationship I had with Dane, and I always felt like I could talk to him about things, and he would always consider very strongly what I had to say. And I never, whatever you've heard about Dane Cook, he never raised his voice to me. He never did anything disrespectful to me. My relationship with him was always great. I can't say that the same with other people, but for me, it was always great. Sure. But I wanted you to be the artist telling sure. the artist. Yeah, so I had a, I had a very uh, casual uh, chat with him. And by the way, it wasn't just me feeling this. It was Lauren Correo and other Comedy Central executives who had seen the show in L.A. the week before. Well, listen, we all want our show that we're doing at that moment that's going to be broadcast on Comedy Central a couple weeks later to be the best it could be, as always. So I talked to him about it, and, he's, and, I, and he, he basically said to me that um, – you know, he wanted he he was going to be doing a DVD of his own set of his own material, and he wanted to. He decided that he wanted to save that material for that DVD. That's the impression I got. Something to that effect. I you know again, this was many years ago, so I can't remember the story. So I said, well, think about it. Um, you know, maybe because we're doing two shows, you know, one tomorrow night too. You have what you have tonight. Maybe do it tomorrow night. See how it does, and then we can we have some choices in the edit room. That was the best I thought. I could at least encourage him to consider it because there was nothing we could do about the show that night because it was already done. So I, um, the next day, I called him in the hotel and left a message. He didn't call me back. And uh, so I had no idea if he was going to do it or not. You know, we didn't really see each other that afternoon. There was no reason to rehearse again. It's a stand-up comedy show. We had already blocked it. You know, the cameras are in place and all that stuff. So he comes out, the same thing at the end of the night, and does his set very similar to the night before. And again, same kind of audience reaction. It was a lot of chuckles, you know, a few laughs. And, you know, not everything was definitely uh, working, not, not a lot of home runs. And then he shifted gears into this home run, you know, uh, routine that he had done the week before in L.A., and, and the place went nuts. After many discussions that I had with him that afternoon well, when he didn't call you back. Well, Barry, uh, thank you for that. And, uh, but what it did do is I think it made him, you know, not want to work with me for a while because he felt like maybe I was too pushy, too persistent, whatever he thought. I mean, my, you know, I, my heart was in the right place. I, I wanted his set to be great. I wanted the show to be great. I didn't do anything like, you know, that I thought was out of the ordinary for a producer to do, but he, it struck him a certain way. Uh, the only thing I remember is that he was about to, uh, uh, look for a producer for his big HBO arena show. And I called you to say, I because I, 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 to me, I thought that was water under the bridge and the final product was great. I had to think he was happy with it. It looked great, sounded great. He came off great. So I, I, I wanted to at least be considered because I was now truly a fan of Dane Cook. And I felt like he was like the closest thing comedy had to a rock star at that moment. And you know how much I love music and shooting rock stars. So you know, I asked you to, you know, talk to Dane about it and I'd love to meet with him about it or put my name in the hat. And you, you called me back and you said, after uh, what happened in Vegas, uh, he, he doesn't want to work with you. You didn't say it necessarily like that, but certainly uh, it felt, I felt bad about it because he didn't even want to consider me because of this little uh, incident that happened in Las Vegas. 
And, and that's that. And then since then, I really haven't crossed paths with him or anything like that. And, uh, but when I, you know, when I do uh, see him on TV or, or see him in a film or whatever, especially in the uh, Louis C.K. show, which I thought uh, was a really great uh, uh, bit for him. Uh, and, and Jeff Ross and I have spoken a lot about putting him on a roast. And I think we've almost, either we have offered it to him or almost offered to him. We sort of have felt him out a few times. And, and, and I think a couple times at the, he didn't want to do it. And a couple times at the last minute we were overbooked. So it still hasn't happened. But, you know, I, I, I look forward to the day that maybe we will work together again. He may not look forward to the day, but I certainly do. No, I think you always have to go past things and look past because I think for that particular moment, this is what happens, Joel. I don't have to tell you this because you know this. This is the most amazing thing about our business. When Dane Cook did that bit at the end, in my mind, he didn't want it to do as well as it did. He wanted to do it and then be able to say to himself, see, it wasn't right for this particular thing. Right. So you wouldn't use it. But you were right. And artists, a lot of times, as I'm embarrassed to say this, they don't like it when somebody suggests something and it proves out to be correct. Because every time they watch it, they think to themselves, that wasn't me that made that decision. That success there, that wasn't me. That was Joel Gallen who made that successful. I mean, granted, I wrote the bit. I coned the bit. I'm the one who performs the bit, but it wouldn't be on there if he hadn't said that. And that keeps coming to me every time I see that. And I think that's the way artists tend to be a lot of times, unfortunately. Yeah. And then you're going to tell the Whitney Cummings story? Yeah, Whitney Cummings story again. Uh, I, I want to preface this by saying I love Whitney Cummings. I want to preface it by saying I've seen Whitney Cummings several times uh, recently, and it's all hugs and all all good. But did you produce her hour special? Uh, I have not watched it yet. But, no, but uh, you produced the hour special. I did not. That's right. Well, I didn't even put my name in the hat for that one, though. I didn't even seek that one out, so that doesn't count. Okay. The, the story with Whitney Cummings is this. We're doing the David Hasselhoff roast which, of course, followed the uh, Joan Rivers roast, which was uh, the first roast that Whitney had done and annihilated and crushed and killed and led to a lot of great things uh, for Whitney. Pamela Anderson was booked as a guest on the David Hasselhoff roast. Now, keep in mind that Pamela Anderson was also already roasted a few years earlier. In fact, the Pamela Anderson roast is how I got in the roast business. And we could talk about that separately, but Pam... Uh, Pam's roast is pretty legendary. And, uh, there were, you know, probably about 400 jokes about her body parts, you know, whether it's her breasts or her vagina, it didn't matter. Uh, there were a lot of, uh, jokes at, at, at those body parts expenses. And she was sitting next to one of her best friends who Courtney Love didn't have all her facilities that night. She said she did though. So, and I believed her anyway, uh, getting back to this. So here we are a few years later now, we're you know, we, we have David, David Hasselhoff, and it's really important that we get Pam to sit on the dais. And we had to uh, twist her arm and make certain promises, which we never liked to do on a roast. But, you know, she just basically asked me, and she knew me pretty well from working with her on the roast, look, 
I know people are going to come after me, but you know, I got it. I got hit so hard, you know, on my own roast. Could we, could we try to like limit the amount of uh, body part jokes, you know, especially the vagina jokes. This is a true conversation that I had with her, with Pam Anderson ahead of time. So I said, I will, I will, I will look out for you. And we do this sometimes for certain requests that uh, Talon has to be on the dais or, or to uh, be the guest of honor. We don't like to do it that much because we want it to be a free form roast and see what works. What I don't understand about it is like, as long as you give them edit rights to take those things out, why they would care if well, they hit them in front of 400 people in the roast? Well, first of all, there's about 1,400 people. Okay. We have a pretty big crowd there at the roast. And it's just one of those things. There's a press feed. There's things that do leak out. You know, it's just, it's just a respect thing. And yes, things do uh, happen even when we try to prevent them from happening. But for the most part, we try to manage the situation. Anyway. Whitney, who up to this point is, is a friend, we, we are, our, our creative chemistry has always been in the same place from when she wrote on the roast to when she's been on the roast. Never an issue. I enjoy her. I look forward to seeing her. She comes to rehearsal. You know, back then, I didn't actually ask talent to send me their script ahead of time. I didn't think it was necessary. And again, thinking this was free form, they're going to change it at the last minute. If somebody does a joke before them that's similar to their joke, they're going to change it. So we really didn't start managing the script process as much till after this particular show. You know, so Whitney shows up. And, this changed the way you ran things. It, it, it may have led to that, yes. She shows up and starts running her set. The, remember, it's the David Hasselhoff roast. And, uh, and, you know, as always, she's hitting everybody on the dais, uh, leading up to uh, multiple jokes about uh, David Hasselhoff. But when she gets to Pam, she does like, you know, nine or ten jokes about Pam. You know, you, which is not standard fare for not the guest of honor. You know, one to three jokes is usually what it is, but there's been exceptions to that. But she is going on and on, mostly uh, going for really dark, mean, spirited jokes. And again, it's a roast, so we know that they're going to be in the show. And just so you all know, there's a slogan to the roast way back to the Friars roast of Dean Martin and the first roast, and the phrase is, we only roast the ones we love. Right. So the harder the joke, the more we love you. Right. Except in this particular case, it didn't feel, you don't feel a lot of love coming out of Whitney when she was telling these jokes. So this is what rehearsal's for. So I literally went up to her, and uh, there were these five jokes all about her vagina that were all meaner than the next. And I just said, Whitney, do me a favor. This is not the Pamela Anderson roast. Do one or two of them. Don't do all five. That's all I ask. I, I, I didn't say which one you should do because they were all <laughs> pretty, pretty mean and, 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 and dark. Um, but pick the one you feel the best and just, just do those. And, uh, and as far as I remember, she agreed. She goes, all right, I'll do that. I'll go look at uh, what I have. Sometimes what artists do and producers, yeah. they say, okay, no problem. And then they just do what they want to do. It happens. But the thing is, like I said, I just want to set the stage. I wasn't critiquing her set. I wasn't critiquing any of her other jokes. I wasn't putting a, a clock on it because we always like people to go long because we have that way of choices in post. It was one sensitive issue. I wasn't even saying eliminate it. I was saying reduce it. 
And that's it. And uh, boom, we come to the night of the show, one after the other. She she does. She may have even added a couple. I can't remember. And there was a lot of uh, uncomfortable feelings uh, in the audience. These were not laughs. They were groans, but not groan laughs or laugh groans, which you get sometimes at these roasts. They were just groans, and sometimes it was just silence. And Pam was squirming. And, you know, listen, Whitney may have uh, accomplished what she wanted to accomplish, and, and obviously, you know, we made the final decision in the edit room of what, what worked and what didn't, but it, it created a little bit of tension between, you know, Whitney and I because, you know, up to that point we had, I thought, a very good working relationship, and I felt like that one we didn't see eye to eye on the uh, final decision. And, and, and that's fine. We edit the show. We left, yeah, as we always do uh, when we edit a roast. You know, I have a very easy way to edit roasts. The first cut, first, way, first time through the show, I leave all the jokes in that worked. When how do I know they worked? Because people laughed. Or they laughed and applauded. Or they groaned and laughed. You know, it, it, it's not difficult. It, usually I have to make very difficult decisions on the second and third pass. Because with the commercial breaks and all that, you only have about 65 minutes of content. And usually we have 80 or 90 minutes of really good roast content. So that's where it gets more difficult. So I, I did what I always do. And Jeff Ross and other comedians, as always, were very complimentary about the cuts and were very pleased with how they turned out. I don't consult with any of them during the process. I just do it with Comedy Central, obviously. And uh, Whitney set, uh, I thought we got it down to a nice tight three, three and a half minute set. Uh, wall-to-wall laughs, very good energy, very funny. Uh, still had some of the mean-spiritedness that she wanted to be in there. We didn't take all of it out, but we took some of it out. Well, what happened was uh, she got on the Howard Stern show right after, either right before the roast aired or right after the roast aired. I can't remember if she was promoting it or just talking about it after it aired. And, um, and essentially just ripped me to shreds on the Howard Stern show. Now, remember, I have a relationship with Howard Stern, and I go way back with him as the guy that put Fart Man on the VMAs and, and many things since. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a show that I listen to often, and, uh, and, and I, I felt like she, you know, made a personal attack for no reason, you know. And, uh, you know, she, she I'm not going to even quote what she said. Let's just leave it at that. But she said things that definitely were hurtful and, uh, and were personal. And, uh, and I just sat back for a few days, didn't really know what I wanted to, how I wanted to uh, deal with it. So I chose instead to, uh, I wrote a letter to Howard. I just gave him my point of view of, 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 of what Whitney said. This is such a great story. And Howard uh, got the letter and chose to read it on the air. That's right. And, uh, and I felt like, you know, I, I got my rebuttal. That's all it really was. It wasn't like I was looking for the last word. I just wanted to... You know, Howard Stern listeners heard Whitney's side of the story, and now Howard Stern listeners heard my side of the story, and that was the end of it. Nothing really ever came of it after that. Um, you know, I don't think Whitney and I crossed paths for a while uh, after that, but next time I saw her, I think it was on the lot at, uh, at CBS Radford. I, I gave her a big hello and a smile and a hug, and uh, I've since seen her a couple times at the Comedy Store, and, you know, uh, you know, we don't keep in touch and, you know, go out for dinner, but, although I would. Uh, and, and I think she's super talented and super funny. It was just this isolated incident that, for whatever reason, uh, she didn't think I acted in the best uh, judge. I didn't act in the best interest for her 
And I felt like I did act in the best interest for her and for the show. Um, because again, like I said, when I put her set together, I think one of the things I'll say that she said on Howard was there were a lot of great jokes that Joel cut from the show. And I, you know, I still probably in the vault somewhere are archives. And one of the things I wrote to Howard in the, in the letter is like, I'm happy to send you the live recording of those jokes that she said were great jokes. So you can judge for yourself of the audience reaction. And that's really what you got to go by on a live television show. I am not a guy that's going to bring a sweetener in to make a joke sound funny if it didn't work in the room. When you have 1,400 comedy fans in a room, if they're not laughing, I'm not putting it on TV. That's all there is to it. So that's the Whitney Cummings story. Great story. And one of the things that all of you should know about the roast, which are so challenging for Joel, he might not think it's challenging. When you watch the roast, everybody watches the roast. They think that my God, this is unbelievable. I've never seen so many people kill so hard. <laughs> These jokes, everyone is killing. This is amazing. And like Joel says, he's not a sweetener kind of guy. You go to a roast taping and people say, God, I wish I could go to a roast taping. I really want to go to a roast <laughs> taping. At the end of a roast taping, you never want to go back. Well, because it's four I, I don't and think a half hours no, it's of not. like people bombing and jokes not that going over and not like true 25 percent of the jokes kill and the other 75 percent are like ooh, boo fall flat or don't get a laugh absolutely your percentages are wrong okay it is? Uh, yes. let's talk to mike sorrento uh, well, well, the situation I mean, some of the earlier <laughs> some of the first of all we'll get to that but some of the earlier roasts like pam anderson because we we overbooked it and plus we had tommy lee perform a song i mean it was crazy long that one was probably our longest one ever, and that was probably three and a half hour taping. But since that time, and certainly the last five or six, we are we are a, uh, a roast producing machine, and we do not let the tapings because we know that sucks the energy out of the room. And if somebody goes at the end and you're sitting there for four and a half hours, you're not going to laugh. So uh, yes, you are right that everything that is said in that room is not does not make it to TV. But I feel like our success is more like sixty percent, seventy percent now of jokes that work and 30, 40% that don't. And, and even the ones that don't work, they sort of do work. And you talked about um, the situation, Mike Sorrentino from, from Jersey the, Shore, from Jersey Shore during the Trump roast, he completely tanked. Now that is the one time that I can tell you in history, I had a feeling he was going to tank. I'm not going to say his name, but the writer who was working with Sorrentino, who has written on a lot of roasts, worked night and day with this guy for a couple of days, and he was convinced that he was going to kill. He came to me because I go, I don't know this guy. He's like, I don't know if he's going to deliver. He said, this guy is going to, he, he's got it. He's going to kill. So it, what, a lot of people thought, well, we purposely had him tank because that made for good TV, the train wreck, the people reacting to it and all that. But the attempt of our writers, our, our singular writer, and maybe some of the writing staff, but definitely a singular writer who worked with him was for him to be funny not for him to be a train wreck. Uh, and that is a, 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 the one instance that I can think of in the 12 roasts I've done where it was a train wreck from start to finish, but it made for good TV. And uh, it made for great material for, for Jeff Ross, uh, who came up and tried to save a set in the middle. So it, it, it was a good live TV moment. So what's weird is that you'll be shocked at this. I don't blame the writer because it wasn't about the writing. It was yeah. about the confidence. doesn't matter how great the jokes are if you've got confidence to deliver them. They're not going to go over well. But on the other side of that, we've had many, many non-comedic celebrities 
that have gone up there and just crushed. Destroyed. Martha Stewart being the most recent example, uh, who just believed in the material uh, on the Justin Bieber roast. I remember uh, we had a great set written. We had to send it to her publicist, manager, whoever that was, or both. And they were like, I don't know if Martha's going to do this. I don't know. And we kept saying, let's get Martha on the phone. Let's let Martha be the judge. Because so many times these reps are so overprotective. They think they know their clients when they don't. So what happened was we got Martha on the speakerphone, and literally she was reading it out loud for the first time. She hadn't even read it before the phone call. And I just said, read it like you're hosting the Martha Stewart show. Just read it in your straight ahead, very simple, you know, very kind delivery. But she just crushed it, and so many like her before. Uh, you know, you believe in the material. We've had some of the best writers in town who find like, little holes in their schedule just to work on the roast. And I feel very fortunate that that has happened. And, and you know, that, that at the end of the day, without those great writers, you know, we, the roast wouldn't be great. A lot of the comedians write their own sets, but they have writers all over town helping them and contributing jokes. And just like we have writers contributing to them and writers contributing to the celebrities, it's a very collective effort uh, of comedy writers and comedy performers in town. And literally, it's a, it's a, a real a community that everybody's rooting for each other. Everybody wants everybody to do well. Nobody wants anybody to tank. So going back to your percentages again, where our percentages are high, our tapings are entertaining, and people who come to the roast tapings do want to come back and can't wait for the next one. All right. I am wrong. Let's go way, way back to Joel Gallon as a boy at home. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Where you grew up, what kind of neighborhood area it was, what was your family like, and what was your first inspiration for getting into the business? Ah, uh, boy, let's see. I grew up in uh, a town called Rockville Center, Long Island, which is now being made famous by Amy Schumer, because she is also from Rockville Center, but she is younger than me, so we did not know each other. Also made famous by Howard Stern, who after... Uh, leaving Roosevelt his junior year. I went to my high school for his senior year. But I grew up in Rockville Center, Long Island. And, uh, you know, I was pretty much, uh, you know, had a lot of friends. I was a B student. Um, I was the youngest of four. I love sports. I grew up a big Detroit sports fan, even though I grew up in Long Island, because I was born in Detroit. But my father and older brother uh, were big Detroit sports fans. I moved to New York when I was four. So I'd be like eight, nine, ten years old. All my friends were Yankee fans or Nick fans or whatever, and I'm like a, you know, a Tiger fan and a Piston fan. Like why? Well, because this is, you know, I wanted to be like my dad or by like my older brother. So, so sports was my obsession. I really, you know, I got early on as a young kid, uh, like in elementary school, I got into music, you know, uh, like pop music, you know, teeny bopper stuff because of my older brother and older sister. You know, obviously got me into everything from the Beatles to the Stones to the Hermits Hermits to a lot of that stuff, uh, uh, to uh, a lot of the, the big 60s teen, teeny bopper bubblegum type stuff. And then I sort of just focused on sports and I didn't even listen to music that much. And um, But then, uh, then when I got into high school, I started getting into uh, like more sophisticated music, like FM type music, like the Allman Brothers and Eric Clapton and, and, and things like that. And I started becoming really passionate about music. And uh, although I had a good sense of humor, and, uh, and I, I felt like my dad was, was always a wisecracker and stuff like that. I never saw myself in the world of comedy in front of the camera or behind the camera. Uh, when I got to college, I went to University of Rhode Island. I got more, more obsessed with music and, uh, you know, was on the concert committee. 
you know, promoting concerts at school. I was uh, working at the radio station, playing music. And again, had a sense of humor, had a good appreciation for comedy, but comedy was never really on my radar as a business. And, um, you know, when I, when I graduated college, I, uh, I was a marketing major, actually. I was a business major, and I had pretty good grades. And I had uh, job offers from like Xerox in Boston and uh, Texas Instruments in Houston. You know, I was going to go the corporate executive route. Um, and, um, but the last day of school, my senior year in college, I met uh, a guy who was uh, working at ICM named Rob Light. ICM, International Creative Management, which is actually one of the top agencies in the world. And That's Rob right. Light is a guy who is... Now a, the head of CAA's music department. That's yeah. right. The head of overall personal appearance department of music. That's correct. And anyway, so Rob was a... One junior. of the most powerful people in the business. And so Rob Light was uh, there because he was a junior agent at ICM and he had promoted the bands that we happened to have at University of Rhode Island that weekend. And we were at a uh, after party uh, celebrating the concert, and it was our last weekend at school. And I remember this girl who was on the concert committee with me said, because she knew I wanted to be in the music business, and that's really what I wanted to do, but I had no connections, and I had written letters to agencies and record companies and management companies and all, and I got form rejection letters. You know, and I had no clout, nobody, I had no relatives or friends who could open a door for me. Or anything. So I had pretty much given up. I was not going to be in the entertainment business. I was going to be in marketing, uh, working for either Xerox, Xerox or Texas Instruments. I was gonna, I was gonna follow a corporate path. And literally, this girl, I remember her name, Janet Koenig, who I've yet to ever been able to thank in person. And she said, you know, she had met Rob Leitch. She goes, you should talk to Rob. He's an agent in ICM, and maybe he could open a door for you. And I said, ah, every time I talk to an agent, they just want to sell you something. I. I, I'm not going to do that. So I, I sort of shied away from it. And then later in the night, I just happened to be standing like right next to Rob Light. I didn't realize it. And then Janet, again, did her thing. She goes, oh, I see you must have met Rob. And, and of course, now I had to meet him. So I introduced myself and he was a very nice guy. And we talked, you know, for about a half an hour. And I lived around the corner. I ran home, got my resume, gave it to him. And he said, well, look, you know, when you graduate, give me a call, take the train into the city because he knew I was in Long Island. And, uh, and let me see if I could introduce you to somebody over there and maybe, you know, uh, I can help you out. So I did what he said, came in, met with him, and then he introduced me to the office manager, Arthur Treef. Uh, and uh, I sat down with Mr. Treef and he said, there's no openings uh, right now in the mailroom because that's where you start in the, in the television, in, 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 in the talent agency business. Yeah, in the agency business, you have to start in the mailroom. You have to do at least a year in the mailroom. There are exceptions. Yes, like Rob Light. Like he, Rob Light. He got out pretty quickly. Yeah, you got to do uh, close to a year. And I didn't care though because I, I thought if that's my foot in the door, I was young, you know, I, I didn't want to go in the corporate world, but I was halfway there. I mean, I was looking for an apartment in Boston. So the, the office manager at ICM said, look, we have no openings now. Give me a call in a month and maybe something will happen. He didn't say he'd call me. He said, you call me in a month. Meaning, like, if you're still interested and we happen to have an opening, we'll see what we can do. Meanwhile, I accepted the job at Xerox. I had found an apartment in Boston. I was ready to move there in August. But I did what this guy said. I called him up. I think it was on July 2nd. And uh, he said, you know what? We do have an opening. Can you start next Monday? And I thought, oh, my God, now what do I do? I thought, I'll do it for a week. 
<laughs> this is my whole life I'm thinking about. I'll do it for a week. And if I like it, I'll tell Xerox I changed my mind. If I hate it, you know, um, I'll go continue my journey to Boston and, uh, and work for Xerox. So I'm in the mailroom for a week. It's the hottest, you know, week of the summer. I just want to stop you here. The financial offer from Xerox per year was what? Uh, 16500 maybe. And the offer from Rob Life? Well, not from Rob Life, but from ICM, probably about $9,000 a year. That's right. Yeah. So if, yeah. if you made a decision to go someplace for half the money. That's correct. Based on your passion. That's correct. Very important point. Keep yeah. going. And so um, I worked in there for a week and, you know, was basically a messenger and, and uh, uh, you know, doing... Uh, getting people's, you know, food and, you know, very much grunt work in the hot subway back then. Subways were not air conditioned. And like I said, it was very hot. I was sweating my balls off and, and just miserable. Like I just, like I was a, I was magna cum laude and, you know, and had a great offer from Xerox and here I am doing this grunt work um, at ICM and I, I was miserable. But at the end of the week, I, I thought about it and I go, well, I could be miserable a little bit longer. Let, let, let me give it a few months, even if it's a year, because... I'm hoping that this is my entree into the business and it opens the door. So I, I did take the leap of faith and, and left the, uh, uh, the corporate uh, world before it even started and kept waiting for an opening in the music department that never came. I mean, it, actually, I take that back. Music department openings did come, but there were people there way longer than me that had seniority and they got them. And then while I was in the mailroom, they started a new division, not the TV division, which represented personal uh, you know, actors and actresses and stuff, they started a television syndication division at, at ICM. And that was my way out of the mailroom. I became a guy's assistant who was basically in charge of selling advertising time for the Richard Simmons show. And the rest is history. That's my, that was my entree into the business. And talk about your first break outside of the agency business in television. Well, my first break really was... Um, I was, uh, I was working for a guy named George Back, who was the head of an organization called NATBE, which is still an organization that has a big... Tell uh, our audience what NATBE is. The National Association of Television Program Executives that every year, they all come to Las Vegas or New Orleans or New York or whatever and have a convention where they buy and sell shows. Syndicated programming. That's right. Which Syn is programming that they buy in the different markets all across the country. That's correct. And the owned and operated stations and also other stations. That is right. And George Back was looking for an assistant because he was starting his own company at the same time. He knew the guy that I was working for at ICM. So he plucked me away and I became his assistant. And uh, he got me involved in not only learning about syndication and, and distribution and advertising sales, but I also got a rare opportunity to learn about production, which I wasn't even sure I would be interested in because there was a show in Newark, New Jersey at the time called The Uncle Floyd Show, which had a huge cult following and, um, you know, was, was on, I think, uh, New Jersey, a Newark, New Jersey sort of... Uh, UHF station, WWHT or something out of Newark, New Jersey. Um, he had a show on every day, Monday through Friday, like six, six o'clock at night. It was like a kid's show for adults. It had, it had sort of a modern day soupy sales kind of vibe. And I started watching this show and really sort of saw, you know, the potential. And George also did and made a deal to like, let's do a pilot and, and, um, and let's see if we can sell it at Natby. You know, and so uh, he, he brought in this executive uh, named Mark Shalom, actually, who became the executive in charge of production. And we shot a pilot for like $10,000, no exaggeration. 
And I was like Mark Shalom's right-hand guy. So I learned, you know, a crap load from this guy, very much on the job training. And somehow George miraculously with his sales team got this show into like 50% of the country. I still to this day have no idea how, uh, but we, we, we actually had enough funny bits in it. It was like, it was like a low budget sketch show with no script was really what it was. Um, but once it went into syndication, you know, George couldn't really afford to keep Mark around. So he basically said, Joel, you're the executive in charge of production. And I knew nothing. So I literally learned about production being in charge of this show. And one of my other um, big things about the show, because remember I told you my, lo my love really was music, was I was the one that was trying to get cool musical acts on it. And we had everybody from like Bananarama to Eddie Money to Squeeze uh, to the Ramones to Paul Simon even. These people were all big fans of the show and they would come on and do the show. The Smothers Brothers did the show. Um, and that was like, I love doing that because it, it kept me sort of immersed in that sort of talent agency music business. But I'd say that was my first break in the sense of, of realizing that I wanted to be a producer. And who gave you the first shot to be an executive producer and create and run with something? And what was that first project where you were at the helm and yes. you're there and my God, they're giving me the keys to the castle here. And I don't know if I'm ready, but. Well, yeah, I could tell you exactly what it was. It was a, a show. There's a show on in England, in the UK, that I think is still on called Top of the Pops. It's like the longest running music show in history. And in like 1989, um, a guy named Drew Levin was uh, running a company called the Entertainment Network. And he, had, he got the rights to try to sell it in, in America, an American version of Top of the Pops. And uh, I started working for his company. And one of the uh, tasks he gave me, I was started off working for him because of my distribution knowledge of how to syndicate a show, how to sell advertising, things like that. But again, I was the only one who knew anything about production. So uh, my job was to meet potential producers because he landed a deal at CBS for Friday nights at 1130 for 26 one-hour episodes to do an American version of Top of the Pops. Again, a brilliant salesman at the time. And um, so he convinced CBS to run it. So my, my job was now to find a producer. So I started meeting with producers, very you know qualified, competent producers. But each one of them, I found something a little bit off. Like, eh, this one doesn't know enough about music. This one, I don't like his visual sense. I don't like her. I don't like this. I don't like that. And I finally went to Drew, and I made him a deal he couldn't refuse because he had a tight budget. And I said, these guys also want a lot of money. Give me the shot to produce this show. Give me the shot to produce a show and I'll do it for like, I don't know, I think I got like $3,000 an episode. I got like so little money compared to some of these other guys who would have gotten fifteen, twenty, twenty-five thousand $25,000. Another pattern here is that yeah. you're working jobs for not a lot of money. Exactly. Just to get where you know you'll do the great work. But this was the miracle. The miracle was, think about this in 1989, how could this have ever happened today? Drew Levin goes to Michael Brockman, the executive at CBS, and says, I want Joel Gallen to be my producer on this show. What has Joel Gallen produced before? The Uncle Floyd show. And I, he was a co-producer of a Cinemax Sessions <laughs> thing that I did with Tisha Fine called James Brown and Friends. And that's it. I had no other experience. And for the, in between all that stuff, it was more I was on the sales marketing side. Somehow, I never asked how, he convinced Michael Brockman that I was qualified to produce his show. And I ended up producing 26 one-hour 
episodes of Top of the Pops. Now, the way that show worked is half the show would be shot in London. We would take some of the stuff they were shooting, and then we would shoot our own stuff. First episode, David Bowie was my first guest, and Mick Jagger was in London. I mean, that was my first episode, first show that I'm producing, really, as, as the executive producer or producer. I was not into directing yet or anything. And it was just a, a dream come true show. And as that show unfolded, we found out that Drew was not using all the money that he was getting <laughs> for the production. And, and finally, we ran out of funds and the BBC had to bail us out to finish the series. And I think Drew is in jail right now for <laughs> other uh, shady uh, exploits. You asked me what was my big break. It was definitely that show because that show led to my MTV job because Joe Davola and Doug Herzog, you know, and, and others like that, when they were looking for a new head of production at MTV, couldn't believe how good I could make a live music show look. And that's led to my entree into the MTV world. Your first show that you ever at the helm of has Mick Jagger and David Bowie in it. Well, at the yes, at that level, as a, a, as a producer of a network show, that is correct. Because I was going to say the first show I was ever at the helm of, of is really the Uncle Floyd show. But that was on a small syndicated basis. On a bigger network basis, that was my first show. And uh, um, I, I do have a picture somewhere that, you know, you know, when we lost David Bowie a couple weeks ago, I was looking for it. There is a picture that exists of me and David Bowie from that show that one day I will find and, uh, and, and share with you. But um, it was uh, just amazing because he's one of my idols. Jagger, I didn't have interaction with because he was shooting his segment in London. I've since had, you know, the pleasure of working with Jagger on other shows. But uh, that particular episode with Nia Peoples as the host from Fame uh, had David Bowie in our studio. And I got to hang out with him a little bit in a moment I'll never forget. Talk about how you created the vision and sold the MTV Movie Awards. Well, I think that one was uh, just a logical extension of MTV already having huge success with the Video Music Awards. Uh, and they were looking for another franchise and another big annual award show and another big annual special event. And uh, uh, MTV, always their biggest uh, moneymaker, the, 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 the advertising revenue that they got the most money from always was the movie industry. Because when they wanted to reach that 12 to 24 audience, they needed to advertise on MTV. And so all the studios were giving MTV all this money all the time. So why not give them a show that they really could embrace and also help promote their summer movies? Because we, we did launch it as a summer show. But more importantly for me, again, it was really my first foray into comedy because I was really a music guy. I mean, I had overseen half hour comedy hour for MTV and a couple MTV comedy specials, so to speak. But this was a show to me that I felt like after watching the Oscars and the Golden Globe for so many years, that we had the opportunity to inject a sense of a reverence into this whole award show world and just make fun of the movie, make fun of the Oscars, you know, and, and all these other award shows and, and create categories that the MTV audience would really care about, like best kiss or best villain or best fight, um, you know, those kinds of things, most desirable male, most desirable female. It didn't matter how great or talented they were as actors. It was more like, how did your scene resonate to this audience? And it was a risk because we didn't know if celebrities would show up. 
And um, we didn't know if they would take it seriously enough. But, but my approach from day one was we got to make this show funny. And um, that, first, uh, see, that first year, we, I think Dennis Miller hosted the first year. Uh, and I think we shot it at the Barker Hangar, and everybody came. And, and uh, uh, you know, and people, the winners were having a good time. And, and uh, you know, I remember uh, Billy Crystal said something. Uh, he was accepting an award for his, his scene. It's something he did, best comedic performance in City Slickers, I think, was in a, he was an award winner. And he, and he said the ultimate compliment. He goes, I'm really having a great time. The Oscars could learn something from this show. You know, he'd already been mm-hmm. the Oscars guy at that time. So... That was like a real pat on our back and really gave us the impetus to go forward and, and start, you know. And, of course, that was also the year we did um, uh, the famous short films where uh, uh, I think it was that year. Certainly in the early years where I had the Brady Bunch reenact a bunch of scenes like from Few Good Men and, and, and a few other movies. Um, the uh, Kevin Costner, Whitney Houston one, Bodyguard, and, um, and I can't remember the third one. Um, oh, actually, we did Malcolm X and that, we had to cut that. That was actually the second year of the show. See, now I'm all over the place because I, I, I blend the first two years together. The first year was Den- Dennis Miller was the host. The second year was Eddie Murphy, the host. And we were still finding ourselves in, in, you know, in, in our direction in, in both of those shows. But it was, a, uh, it was something that, like I said, got me into thinking how to make fun of stuff, both on stage, off stage, pre-taped short films. And that, of course, eventually led to a lot of these short films that the movie awards ended up be, becoming famous for. Tell our audience the story or the craziest thing that happened to you that would be the highlight chapter of your book when you write it. I've had a lot of stories, which obviously I want to pick one. I don't know if, I don't know if any of them individually were life-changing, but I think the story I'm going to tell now was... Uh, says a lot about just who I am as a producer. And, um, and also it led to one of the most memorable, uh, you know, pieces of uh, film or product, whatever you want to call it, that I've ever been associated with. And that is, uh, it was the 2000 MTV Movie Awards. And, uh, you know, we're, we're well on our way to, you know, developing that year's show and ideas for the short films and who was going to host and that kind of thing. Mission Impossible 2 was coming out and, and all the hoopla uh, leading up to Mission Impossible 2 was that, uh, you know, John Woo directed it and Tom Cruise did all his own stunts. Okay. That was the big deal. So I'm thinking to myself, I'd already worked with uh, Ben Stiller a lot at this point. You know, he had hosted the movie awards. He had hosted the VMAs. He, you know, he obviously had done the Ben Stiller show on MTV he had done this thing I did with Roseanne, which is when I, one of the times I worked with you, I think when Jeff Ross was on that show, Saturday Night Special, mm-hmm. one of those episodes, Ben Stiller was a guest host. So I, we, we got to know each other really well over those last few years. So I tended to, when there was a funny idea on a show I was working on, I tended to ask Ben, would he be interested in doing it? Because Ben, in those days, he was sort of like, if it's funny, I want to do it. He didn't care about the money. He didn't care about what. He just, he just cared about it being good. The script is funny. I'm interested. So I had this idea after reading all this about Cruz doing his own stunts. I remembered that uh, and ben, ben started as, believe it or not, a almost like a quasi-executive at MTV, artist executive. That's correct. And he had that great Ben Stiller sketch show, which many, uh, many people uh, um, to this day, I mean, that was obviously how he launched his career, you know, was that. And he did a lot of characters. 
And one of the characters he did brilliantly was Tom Cruise. And I remember that. So I, uh, I reached out to, um, uh, to Ben and I said, I have this idea. We don't have a script yet. But the idea is that you are Tom's stunt double on Mission Impossible 2. But since Tom does all his own stunts, you really have nothing to do. You just sort of like hang around the set. And we just get this interaction between you and Cruz. Now, Cruz had never done the movie awards up to that point, even as a presenter. So I had no idea, you know, what sense of humor he would have about this. And, you know, he was at the top of the height of his popularity and hotness and number one male movie star, you know, in, in Hollywood at the time. So, but I took a shot and I, and, and, I, and I pitched this idea. So Ben was interested, depending on when it would happen, because he said, I'm leaving town to get married. And I said, all right, well, we're going to try to ha- make it happen quickly. I think we were talking like in April and Ben was leaving town in the middle of May to get married in Hawaii and then to go on his honeymoon in Australia. And then the show was going to air like early June. And I knew Tom was in town doing the finishing touches of Mission Impossible because it was coming out in May. So we reached out to Tom and I remember talking to his sister and talking to his publicist, Pat Kingsley. And they said like, uh, you know, this is, this is uh, something that maybe we'll show to Tom, see what he thinks. So at this point, we wrote a script, Tom, uh, that, uh, a draft at least. It was close enough that Ben liked it. So he said, cool, yeah, send it to Tom. So I sent it to Tom. He loved it, thought it was hilarious and wanted to do it. So we're all set to do it. We're gearing up for pre-production to do it. And then Tom has to leave town. Something happened. I don't know if it was a reshoot or he had to go to New York. He had to do something and he had to leave town because of the, but it, it, he had to do it because otherwise the movie wouldn't get finished. Something went wrong with the movie. So he had to do something to get it done. And so he had to leave town and he wasn't coming back until Ben was already leaving for his wedding. And, uh, and I was devastated because I was like this close. I was on the finish line, on the one yard line. And, um, and Ben was bummed too, because he really wanted to do it. Because at that time he hadn't worked with Tom Cruise yet either. And uh, so we said, all right, well, you know, we gave it everything we got and we had to move on. But I was bummed. But then Cruz's camp started saying, well, if, if, you know, if Ben can't do it, maybe we could do it for somebody else. I said, I don't think so. I, I think it's really perfect for Ben, but we'll try. So we wrote a version of the script for like Jack Black. We wrote a version for like Andy Dick. We wrote a version for like Owen Wilson. But it never really felt the same, even on the page, without even seeing them together. So it just didn't, it didn't feel like it was going to happen. And I knew sort of the schedules, you know, the, the funny thing was Ben was in Australia now on his honeymoon and Tom was about to leave town for Australia with Nicole because uh, he had finished the movie and, uh, and, and there was just no, and then I started thinking, well, maybe we could shoot this in Australia, but just never was going to work for this little three minute short film that I wanted to do from the movie awards. Then I get a call from, um, I don't remember who called me, somebody from Paramount, I think called and said, well, you know. You should stay, don't give up yet because Nicole, something happened. She got ill and she has to stay in town. She can't fly now for another week. And so they've, they've changed their plans and, and they're going to stay in LA for another week. So then I called Ben's office at Red Hour. I said, when's Ben's honeymoon over? You know, and they said, uh, like in a week and a half or something like that, like three days. He wasn't coming back to LA till like three days after Tom was going to leave for Australia. I thought, okay, well, that's a little bit better than before, where before that wasn't, wasn't even close, you know? So I thought, I'm going to take a shot. And I write an email, a passionate email to, to Ben that I don't even know if he's going to get. He's on his honeymoon in Australia with his new wife. And I write this email to him to say, well, listen, Ben, you know that film that you wanted to do, that I wanted to do, that Tom wanted to do, that we just couldn't make work logistically? And then you went off and got married and now you're on your honeymoon? 
Tom was supposed to leave town like today, but now he's staying for another week. I understand you're coming back in a week and a half. Any chance you would consider cutting your honeymoon short and coming back a couple days early to do this film? This film, granted, that he wouldn't get paid for, it would just be doing it for the sake of comedy, for the sake of like, hey, this is a cool thing to do. And again, a lot of promotion and, and visibility if it comes out right. And he writes me this thing. He's like, are you out of your mind? I'm on my honeymoon. You want me to get divorced? You listen to that. And then like the last sentence, he's like, but it is something I really want to do. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look into the flights and uh, see, what's, see how difficult it will be, and I'll get back to you. And as soon as he said that, I knew deep inside that there was, there was a chance that this could happen. And uh, lo and behold, a uh, lot of crazy changing of schedules and coordination. And, and uh, somehow, I think I even had to convince Tom and Nicole to wait an extra day than their original departure time. So, so Tom and Nicole can meet Ben in the middle a little bit. So he only had to cut two days off his honeymoon instead of three days. So he comes back and he lands at LAX at like 10 o'clock at night. And I have to arrange for a screening of Mission Impossible 2 like at 11 o'clock at night on the Paramount lot because he wanted to get a sense of the movie, even though he had seen the script and all the stuff, but he wanted to, in case he wanted to ad-lib something. And so we did that and the Paramount provided that for us. And then the next day, we shot that whole film in probably like six hours, of which we only had time for like an hour and a half. You know, a lot of that stuff that Ben's doing in the film was Ben just doing it without Tom on the set. And then we maximized like basically one take on everything that Ben and Tom did. And John Wu was on the set with us, and uh, it was just it was just a magical thing, and we just sort of pieced it together. And like I said, it's not a fancy film, but it just resonated with everybody, and their chemistry was just undeniable. And it became one of one of the, if not the most famous short film in the history of the movie awards. And just you know, again, way before YouTube, but if YouTube had existed back then, I'm sure it would have uh, achieved millions of hits for sure. All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention something, a name, a project, anything. Okay. And just tell me whatever comes to mind. Jim Carrey. I got to say two things on Jim Carrey. First of all, if there was a MTV Movie Awards Hall of Fame, Jim Carrey should be the first inductee. Because remember I told you earlier about the Movie Awards, about how you have to embrace this show as a comedy show? He embraced it full force. But he came out, one time he came, he came out as like a Hell's Angel uh, biker type. And he came to the show, walked the red carpet, was in the green room as this character. Long hair, the beard, the jacket, the leather jacket, smoking a cigarette, and he never broke character. You know, and, 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 and we had no idea what he was going to say. None of that stuff was even scripted. I mean, maybe it was scripted in his head, but we didn't put it on the prompt or whatever. He was brilliant on the, prom, on the red carpet. He was brilliant backstage. And he was brilliant on accepting his award, which was probably for some, for either Ace Ventura or Dumb and Dumber. I can't remember which movie he won, but he won so many times. He was very popular with our audience and with a lot of people's audiences at the time. But probably the most memorable thing that I did with Jim Carrey was when I had the uh, Rolling Stones on um, uh, the VH1 Fashion Awards. And he came back to me and he says, okay, I'll introduce them, but I want to do it in a fig leaf. You know, he just came out wearing a fig leaf and he was completely, completely naked. He loved the Stones and he had a, this, this crazy idea that he would come out and do it, and he did it, and it, it was uh, quite memorable. But again, with Jim Carrey, so many, so many great memories, and uh, um, loved working with him every single time. And you know, I, I would love, uh, I would love him to be uh, the guest of honor on a Comedy Central roast uh, one day. I don't know if he'll ever do it, but I'd love it. Sir Paul McCartney. Oh God, 
Paul McCartney. Okay. Uh, I was working at MTV. I was the executive producer of Unplugged. We were in the early stages of Unplugged where, you know, people like Sinead O'Connor, Lords of the New Church, Squeeze, Joe Walsh. Uh, these were the names of the people that were doing um, Unplugged. And then we sort of took it to the next level and we got Hall & Oates and we got Stevie Ray Vaughan and we got Don Henley and people like that. And they started running the Unplugs. For and those of you who haven't seen Unplugged or know anything about it, because there's people in this room who, believe it or not, are 18 and some people younger listening, Unplugged was a groundbreaking series where there was no electric music. It was all acoustic. It was for bands who are norm normally known to play electric, who play at arenas and, and big, big arenas usually, to take all of the electricity away and play it stripped down. And uh, it didn't always happen exactly that way, but that was the idea. But anyway, so McCartney had no record coming out, had nothing to promote. They started running our Unplugged episodes on MTV Europe. And uh, somebody in the MTV talent department got a call from somebody in McCartney's camp um, that McCartney just saw a bunch of Unplugs. I guess he saw the Hall & Oates one and a few others and really dug the show and he'd like to do it. He wants MTV to come to England and film him doing an episode of Unplugged. Who are we to argue? <laughs> you know? So uh, I think this was in December, uh, early December. Uh, I fly to London uh, with some uh, MTV, MTVers and a Capitol Records representative uh, to meet with Paul and Linda. Uh, at the, at the, I remember it was at the BBC Studios. They were doing a, a guest stint there or something to talk about Unplugged. So I was nervous, but, uh, you know, definitely we've talked about a lot of people that I am big fans of, but this was the Beatles is who I idolize more than anybody. And McCartney, you know, and Lennon probably, you know, tied for first place as far as who I've idolized all my life. So I, I, I you know, I had a nice chat with them and uh, we talked about the show and we talked about doing it at the end of January. And, um, and I said, listen, up till now, Unplugged is a half an hour. That's it. Uh, you know, but if we're going to come all the way over here and do a Paul McCartney unplug. We got to do an hour. He was like, I like the idea of a half an hour. Leave the audience wanting more. I'll bang out five or six songs. That's it. I, and I try to, you know, again, <laughs> trying my methods of persistence, but you can't really do that to Sir Paul. So I didn't push too hard. I didn't want to push my luck. So I said, okay, you know, obviously if that's what you want. That's fine. And uh, so we left and uh, we looked around for a place, you know, location. We found a, a stage to do it. And I went back to New York to start mapping out what we're going to do. And of course, in the MTV way, we had to figure out how to amortize. This is an expensive shoot now for us. You know, we had to fly to London. Obviously, I was going to pick up a lot of the crew in London, but we're going to pay for this stage. And even though it's McCartney, it's still going to be expensive. Let's also find another band to shoot. So while the set is up and the stage is there, we could bang out another unplug. So we were getting all these kinds of logistics done. But also what happens is uh, the Gulf War. Tensions are, are, are mounting, and uh, the Gulf War breaks out. And, um, and all of a sudden, a lot of corporations, a lot of companies, around that time in the middle of January, uh, I think it was around January 15th when it was like officially started or whatever, that they just banned international travel. They didn't want to be responsible because there were like tanks at Heathrow, and there were, there were all kinds of uh, security issues that were risks that they thought, and they just didn't want anybody um, to take that chance on their watch. And Viacom was one of those companies. And I'm like, Paul McCartney unplugged. I call up uh, Paul McCartney's manager. 
And I said, could we postpone it until things calm down? And, and, and Richard Ogden was his name. He was the manager. He said, listen, we're, we're, we're doing this show, whether you do it or not. If we have to film it ourselves, because Paul got so into it that there's no way he didn't want to do it. So if you guys don't want to come here, we'll film it. Don't worry. We know what we're doing, and we'll give it to you, or I'll see you January 25th, whatever the date was. And, uh, and he, was, he meant that. And I was like, I mean, I remember calling my dad and, and asking my dad, because he, he, was, he was a salesman earlier in his career, and he traveled everywhere. I said, Dad, what's your opinion? Do you think it's really unsafe to travel? He goes, no, it's the safest time to travel because security is at the highest you know, uh, level right now, and they're, they're taking all kinds of precautions, and it's absolutely, in my dad's opinion, safe to travel. So I went to the president of MTV uh, at the time, was John Reardon, and I pleaded with him. And I think Dwight Tierney was the uh, head of human uh, resources, you know, who had said I couldn't go. And I, uh, and I just said, listen, I'll sign a, re- a waiver, a release that I'm going on my own you know, free will and, and, and you have nothing to do with it. But this is a once in a lifetime thing. I got to go and do Paul McCartney un- Unplugged. And, and they finally allowed me to do it, but they wouldn't let me take anybody else from MTV, which pissed off by like a half a dozen other people that wanted to go. And I had to pick up everybody from London uh, to do it. So I was working with all people I've never worked with before, um, except for I was able to bring my director at the time was Bruce Gowers, and my lighting director was Alan Brand because they didn't work for MTV, and they were willing to get on a plane and go. Okay, so we get to London, and Michelle Peacock, who was the executive at Capitol Records, says, all right, the first day there, we got there a few days before we're going to shoot the show, we're going to go up to Paul's farm, Paul's house, which is on a farm. And, uh, and we're going to see Paul's rehearsal. So I'm like, like, what? We are? That's incredible. So we, we drive like an hour north of London, maybe an hour and a half, and this beautiful land and this beautiful farm and this beautiful home. And inside a barn, he's converted it into both a rehearsal space and a, and a recording studio. And it's small, though. It's like not much bigger than this room, maybe twice as big as this room. And there's Paul with his five or six-piece band, and uh, Michelle Peacock, myself, Bruce Gowers, Alan Brand are sitting in this, on this like old couch, uh, like crowded on this couch, like four of us. And McCartney's right there, like literally right there, like five feet away from me with a music stand. He goes, all right, Joel, I'm going to run the set. Tell me what you think. Okay. This is a true story. And he basically goes into, I think, 22 songs. Remember I said I left London and he was going to do five or six songs, leave the audience wanting more? He prepared 22 songs. 19 of them were Beatles songs. And three were like covers from, you know, uh, you know some of his in- influences, you know, from the late 50s, early 60s. It was unbelievable. And he was playing songs that he hadn't played since he recorded them with the Beatles. Because remember, when the Beatles, by the time the Beatles broke up, the Beatles hadn't toured that much. And the little bit they toured, they would do like seven Beatles songs and a bunch of covers. You know, they would do Little Richard, Chuck Berry. And they'd be off the stage in like 45 minutes, you know, because there was so much screaming, so much deafening, and the sound was horrible. It's not like they did like a Bruce Springsteen set and did their whole catalog. So in many cases, uh, some of these songs, he, he hadn't even poured because when he, for those years, there was years where McCartney toured as, as the wing, with Wings and McCartney solo artists, he didn't do any Beatles songs. He didn't want to acknowledge that. And this was one of the first things that he's like, let's embrace the fact that I wrote all these great songs for the Beatles. And he was doing like, we can work it out and, uh, and I love her and Blackbird. And he was doing all his classics and reading every word off the uh, music stand. 
I knew the words better than he did. <laughs> I'm like singing along and he's like, like looking at these words. And that's when he said to me, I said, I said, Paul, you know, when we do the show on Friday, you're not going to need this music stand, right? He goes, no, hopefully I'll, I'll remember the words. But that's when he said, you got to remember that a lot of these songs I'm sort of, I have to re-remember, you know, because of been so long since they actually performed them. And it turned out actually, and when we taped Unplugged, he, he did forget the words to We Can Work It Out and had to start over. But it was such a charming moment, we ended up leaving it in. But I'd have to say, you asked me earlier, uh, as far as a life-changing moment, I'd say that was a life-changing moment, to sit there with Paul McCartney and spend that much time with him and his wife, Linda, who I got to know, and she gave me her book, and it was just, and had tea with them. Uh, but most importantly, sitting there in this private show in his barn for 22 songs of some of the greatest music you'll ever hear, and I wish to God I had a camera, you know, filming that. Because that would have been just magical to be able to um, keep as an archive. But uh, unfortunately, uh, we didn't have that. But that, that was the first of many times I ended up working with Paul. But that's a long answer, but an important one when it comes to Paul McCartney. Got it. The types of people that you work with that suffer from addiction and suffer from these demons... And I'll share these names, and I'm sure if they were sitting here, they would acknowledge those situations. People like Andy Dick, people like Greg Giraldo, Artie Lang, Cat Williams, Tom Arnold, people who really suffer and are fighting for life every day. Talk about how you figure out how to work with brilliant talent who you know could self-destruct at any moment, but you still have to support them, encourage them to be a certain way and give a great performance, but also inspire them to maybe in the future look at life a different way. You know, my initial thought there, you know, because you've mentioned some names that I, I've I was very close with Greg Giraldo. I am still very close with Andy Dick. Um, you know, those two names specifically, I in some ways wish that I worked with them when they were affected by their addictions. Um, they may have been at some, at some times, but I feel like when I was working with Andy Dick, which was numerous amount of times, and of course with Giraldo, I felt like he, they were both focused on what we were doing, focused on being great, focused on being funny. And uh, even though I had heard that there was issues with both of them, it's not like I was oblivious to it. I didn't experience it. And I somehow feel like if I experienced it firsthand, maybe there was something I could do to help. You know, to this day, I know that Andy's doing great right now. I just saw him the other day. And I have... Um, Me too. That's good. And I have offered to help in, in, in many ways. And, 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 and he will... He could tell you a lot of great stories that we've shared over the years, funny stories. Geraldo, I hear, I heard all those stories. And I, I kept thinking, that's a thing of the past. You know, he's, he's my opening guy on the roast. You know, he's, he, I did his one-hour special for Comedy Central also in New York. He was completely lights out on the, on the lights out in a good way. He was like focused and, you know, uh, killing it with his comedy. You know, when he died... Greg Giraldo was supposed to play at my high school reunion in Long Island. 
a lot of people don't know this, not that it's a great story or anything, but, you know, I'm, I'm doing my high school reunion. I'm helping organize it in Long Island in 2010. And, um, and I called him up like a month before. I said, ah, you know, what do you, what, maybe you could book a gig in Long Island. What's that place in Levittown? That a lot of- Governors. Yes, I think it was Governors because it was close to the hotel we were having it. I said, why don't you book yourself, uh, get, your, get your agent, book yourself there that weekend. I'll have a car, pick you up in between sets. And you can come over and do like a 10-minute set. He says, absolutely, like without fail, He's without hesitation. And he did it. He booked the governor's thing. I was all set to do it. I talked to him like a week before, had no concerns at all. And then like Wednesday before the show, Wednesday before my reunion, I started trying to reach him and I couldn't reach him. And the next, the first text I got was from Jeff Ross. You know, did you hear Greg's in a coma? And I, I was like, I was like, I cannot believe it. I, I, I did, at first I thought maybe it was a car accident or something like that. But so my point is that I had unbelievable respect and love for Geraldo, but I did not, you know, focus in on his addiction. Um, and like I said, I didn't experience it firsthand. I, did, I was not one of these producers that worked with talent, which many have, not necessarily Geraldo, but others that showed up wasted, that became unreliable, that would come three hours late to a set. You hear all these stories about all different kinds of people. Andy Dick never did that to me. Greg Geraldo never did that to me. Artie Lang did that to me, but Artie Lang and I don't have the relationship that I had with, you know, Geraldo and, and Andy Dick. You know, Artie Lang's was just he didn't get on the plane when he was supposed to come out for the Saget roast. And, uh, and that led to, you know, him having to get help and it ended up leading to him not doing the Howard Stern show anymore. Uh, but it's a real shame. Um, another name that I do regret that I, I wasn't there to help that you didn't mention because it, it was much later in, in life that I think he had somewhat of an, an addiction is Drake Sather. Drake Sather was a brilliant stand-up comedian from Seattle who did the Letterman show when he was a middle act. That's how powerful he was. Yep. And one of the most respected guys out there from then went to the Bay Area and did a lot of comedy there at the height and took his own life. Yeah, Drake, uh, I became very good friends with. He used to write on the movie awards. You know, I had like a Hall of Fame writing staff. When I look back at the first five or ten movie awards, we can come back to that. The, the, the names that were on that show were incredible. But Drake was there every year. He would take a leave of absence from his show or work at night or on the weekends because he really wanted to work with me. Uh, on that show, and he also loved fashion. Drake Sather loved fashion. He had an obsession with fashion models. So Drake worked with me on the VH1 Fashion Awards. When I took over the VH1 Fashion Awards in 1996, and I said, we got to make, again, just like I did with the movie awards, I said, let's take the piss out of this industry now. And we got to make fun of models and agents and photographers and all that. Drake's the one that wrote all those scripts. He wrote the first Zoolander script to make it fun of, making fun of a male model. We made fun of a fashion photographer. He wrote for Joe Rogan. Uh, you made fun of a fashion designer, and we called him Andrew Taylor, and it was Andrew Dick, Andy Dick that did it. He was the brilliant mind. And over the years, we were very close. But then that last year, as happens in this business, you know, he was going through a rough time uh, at home. He moved out, uh, got an apartment downtown, and I didn't see him as we weren't crossing as many paths, and we didn't see each other that much. Uh, although I did see him a few weeks before uh, by chance, but I could tell something was off. And, you know, I'm in my own thing. I'm immersed in my projects and my work and all that. And I, it just didn't click, you know, that, you know, maybe I need to sit down, have dinner and see what's going on. And maybe there's something I could say or do. Of course, you, you go through that and then you get that call in the middle of the night that he's gone. But again, with Drake and all these other people you've mentioned, you know, I, I saw them at their creative best and I didn't see them 
as far as I know, being affected by their addictions. Zoolander. Well, Zoolander, we just touched on. I mean, Zoolander, uh, again, was just me, you know, starting, uh, you know, to uh, take over a new show called the VH1 Fashion Awards, which the year before was the only year it had existed. And it was a very serious, let's award this designer, let's award this model, let's award no comedy at all in it. And I said, if you want me to do it, we're going to make it funny. So that's what we did. And we wrote this script for, um, well, we, initially it wasn't necessarily for Ben. But of course, when Drake and I are behind it, our first choice is always going to be Ben. And I think Drake's inspiration for writing that character was uh, uh, Ben Stiller used to do uh, Luke Perry from Beverly Hills 90210 on the Ben Stiller show again. So we sort of wrote it. He wrote it in that voice because that was very like felt like a male model, you know, kind of uh, voice that we imagined. And uh, we sent it to Ben. Ben liked it, agreed to do it. Filmed it in L.A. about a week before we were taping the show in New York. Edit it. Send the cut to Ben um, about three hours before the show that night. We're gonna the show's not live, but we're gonna tape it live in front of three thousand people. Called live the tape. Thank you. <laughs> in front of three thousand people at the theater at Madison Square Garden, and then it was gonna air a few days later on VH1 after we had a chance to maybe edit it and stuff. Ben calls me up that afternoon and says, "You know." I don't think we should uh, run this film. I'm not feeling it. I said, Ben, this is funny. This is funny. Drake thinks it's funny. VH1 people think it's funny. This is going to kill. Remember, this is the fashion industry. They, nobody ever makes fun of them. We are going to be the first, and they're going to explode with laughter. I was saying whatever I can say. to get, I said, so finally, he really didn't want me to run the film. And finally, I said, look, we're not live. It's only 3,000 people. I will, re I will, I will record like a point of view shot from the audience. You could see it on the screen and see the people's reaction. And if they don't react the way I think they're going to react, then we'll pull it. Will you at least give me that? And he said, all right. So that was that. So we ran it. It killed. And he uh, was very happy it did. I remember having uh, dinner with him like a month after that, just going over some other stuff. And he's like, yeah, I'm sorry I gave you a hard time about that. At the time of that show, which was 1996, he felt like he was, people were coming up to him on the street more for that little Zoolander short film and talking to him like, do the Blue Steel, do the Ferrari, than any other role he'd ever done before that. So he knew he had something special uh, at that point. But again, he was, uh, he was reluctant and needed his arm twisted. And now a second one's coming out. And now a second one's coming out 15 years later. Uh, but uh, it is in, in some ways a good thing because two generations, three generations. I mean, that, that show, that, that movie has such a following from cable and DVD sales and just word of mouth. It's like my son can't wait. He's 11 years old. He can't wait for the sequel, you know? Now how are you involved in that at all? I'm really not involved. I'm not involved because, you know, it's a whole different team. You know, I sort of went my way. They went their way, you know. But you and Dre created the concept. Th that's correct. And, and when you create the concept for something in the movie business, normally yeah. you participate financially. Normally, yes. But uh, I was the executive producer of the first movie, and uh, I did not participate financially at all. And not, not by choice, but uh, that's just the way it landed. And you know why? I can tell you why, because the movie only made $43 million. So, and the movie that was shot went a little bit over budget, so a lot of the producers and executive producers had to defer some fees. And I was the first one to volunteer because I didn't care. I just wanted it to be successful. The movie came out two and a half, three weeks after 9-11. So not a lot of people were in the mood to go see a silly movie like this. You know, everybody was upset. And, and so it ended up only making about 
43 million. If the movie had made over $50 million at the box office, I would have gotten like twice my fee. I have two words for you. Stupid. No. Back and right. Like I said, uh, I have never been great at making good business deals. I'm more about the creative process. And I should have had you, Barry, make that deal. <laughs> I should have. Uh, I have no regrets, though. I, I, I feel like Ben gave me a lot of great stuff over the years and was very good to me. And to this day, still good to me. But, you know, I've immersed myself in the TV world and he's immersed himself in the film world. And, um, I, you know, if there's anything he needed, I would have been there for him. But uh, I am not involved with the with the movie. America, a tribute to heroes. I was uh, uh, directing a movie called Not Another Teen Movie in uh, 2001. I was editing that movie when 9-11 happened at Sony. And this is a very silly movie, too. This is like an R-rated comedy. I mean, we had exploding toilet scenes. We had naked foreign exchange students walking around. So this was not like... uh, a serious movie. We had the fat guy. We had, yes, we had a lot Ron of- Ron Lester at the yes, time, right? Yes, he was we not had, fat anymore. We had the token black guy. We, we went, we pushed the envelope and had a lot of stereotypical things. But did you have any Jews? The popular jock. We had no Jews in the movie. They, there was no Jews in John Hughes' teen movie, so we, we kept that okay. consistent. Anyway, what happened was, uh, as, as with everything, anybody who was working that time, everybody just sort of stayed home for a few days- and just took it all in, trying to figure out, you know, what's going to happen? What can we do to help? You know, uh, when are, you know, how do we overcome this devastation, this emptiness that we all feel? So everybody felt that, not just me, of course. I was um, back in, you know, the 9-11 was on a Tuesday. And on Friday morning, I get a call from a guy named Alex Wallow, who I never spoke to in my life. He was the head of ABC at the time. And on the phone with him was Andrea Wong, who I did speak to and had worked with before. Who was Andrea sick. Wong was the head of alternative programming right. at ABC and was responsible for mostly overseeing a lot of non-scripted programs. That's correct. And Andrea and I had worked together, not a lot, a couple times. And um, so she knew my work and stuff. So they call me up and they said, uh, you know, uh, all the networks want to do something. Uh, we don't know what we want to do, but we want to do something. And um, we want you to do it. I said, well, that was, that, that was just like, I mean, like my, I just like got so emotional and I got choked up at the time. And I still do when I think about it, because like of all the people in this town, why pick me, you know, to do this? But, uh, but this was apparently, you know, Andrea, I guess, pushed. She said, there's a lot of guys that do what Joel does, but he's the guy that can figure this out in a short period of time. And, uh. I said, short period of time, when do you want to do this? And they said, we, we need this on the air a week from tonight, seven days from today. I, I said, well, what is the show? And they said, well, we don't know what the show is. We want to do a conference call later this afternoon with the presence of the networks, you know, Les Moonves and Sandy Gruschow and Scott Sassa and, uh, and I guess him and Alex Wallow, you know, the four, the four main, main networks. Let's get on the phone. Let's talk about it. So we like set a call for like three or four in the afternoon. And then I also said, I'm in the middle of editing a movie that has a deadline. And if I'm going to do this, I got to just stop the movie for a week, which means Sony has to give me permission to do that. So Alex Wallow says, well, I know Jeffrey Katzenberg, so I'll have him make a call. I said, all right, well, tell him to call Amy Pascal because I'm sure they're good friends. 
and see what he can do. Amy was the head of Sony. That's correct. And um, so we have this call first with the network executives at four o'clock and we talk about the show. And I don't really even remember exactly what I said. I just knew uh, that the show had to be intimate. I knew it had to be, you know, uh, you know, we had to book the biggest names in, in, in the industry, whether it's celebrities or, or, or musicians. It had to be very um, subtle, everything. This could not be a fanfare type show. I didn't want a live audience. I didn't want like, hey, our next presenter, our next intro, our next performer. I didn't want any of that. I knew all that right away. I didn't know exactly how to stage it, um, but that sort of hit me right away. And um, and they just listened. They said, okay. And of course, network mentality more is you got to have a live audience. What, how, nobody's going to clap at the end of the performance. I don't understand that. I said, no, this is a fundraiser. Let's make it like it's a stripped down telethon. And just let's take over a small stage in LA. Let's take over a small stage in New York. Because I figured this short notice, let's get people wherever they are. And let's just do the best we can and get whoever we can get. And, uh, and basically, I said, let's make a lot of calls this weekend. And let's have a call Monday morning. And if we don't have the biggest and the best, we can't do the show. So you cannot do this show. And I, didn't, I don't want to mention any names with this name or that name. If we don't show that the entertainment, uh, the A-list of the entertainment business is not coming out in full force to support the cause and to help raise money, you shouldn't do it, especially if it's a the first roadblock like this on all four networks. And they agreed. Did you talk to your old friend from the very beginning, Rob Light? I might've got, gotten Rob involved. Yeah. But I did the people that the true people that got involved from the starter, first of all, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who called up Amy Pascal and who doesn't, Jeffrey Katzenberg didn't, does not know me at the time. She, and he calls up Amy, goes, we need Joey Gallen. <laughs> he, he didn't know my name. He calls up Amy to uh, have a week off from the movie so he could do this show. And Amy calls me, I think at home that night. She goes, I, I got this call from Jeff, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Tell me about this. And I said, well, yeah, Amy, they called me and, and, and uh, I would love to do it, but I, I, I need your blessing because I, ha I have to tell everybody just to go home for a week and, you know, and, and let me do this and, and then I can do it, but I can't do it part time. She goes, well, I get choked up again, but she goes, of course. You need to do it. And she, she shut down the movie for a week and let me do it. And then I had to, um, uh, you know, I, want, I knew I needed help right away. So I, I, you know, I called Jimmy Iovine because I knew Jimmy. I knew he knew everybody. And so I knew he would make some calls for me. And, and, uh, um, and I think Ari Emanuel was also very much involved early on. For those of you who are under a rock, Jimmy Iovine, one of the greatest <laughs> music executives in the world, now runs Apple Music. Right. And of course, Ari Emanuel is now one of the co-presidents and CEOs of William Morris Endeavor. Right. So he helped. And of course, Jeffrey Katzenberg helped. I'd say those were the, the big three besides myself sort of making calls and, and trying to get people to commit, you know, without even really knowing what the show is. But, you know, I talked to John Landau, Springsteen was in. I talked to, uh, you know, Jeff Kramer, Paul Simon was in. You know, I talked to... Uh, this one and that one, all of a sudden Billy Joel was in, you know, we had to get the New Yorkers, you know, covered, you know, right away, because obviously that, that was most important. And, and then, you know, next thing, you know, we had this one, that one, and, 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 and Jeffrey Katzberg was getting like Tom Hanks and Tom Cruise and Denzel Washington and this one and that one. Everybody, nobody was saying who else was doing it. Everybody says, what do you need me to do to help? And uh, so everybody was in. And then by Monday, you know, I had, I had, I figured out where we're going to shoot it in LA where to shoot it in New York. I had a team in New York helping me. Who put the budget together for that? Basically what I said to them is nobody's going to get paid as far as I'm concerned. You know, everybody has to do this because they want to do it. 
So they didn't have to really worry about a budget. I said, but there will be unions and certain costs that are unavoidable that won't do it just because they want to do it. I can't tell you exactly. I mean, I brought in a line producer to manage that, but what we actually spent is astronomically low. Like we didn't pay for the stage. We didn't pay for any talent. We paid for no entourages. We didn't pay for anybody's flights. We didn't pay for anybody's equipment. We didn't pay anybody's salary. Everybody worked because they wanted to do it. That was just the most amazing thing. So we did this. We, 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 I structured the show. I remember saying, given the final pitch, saying, listen, I got to go full steam ahead now. But I, the way I saw it, it was a two-hour show, no commercials. You know, I did all the, the timings of it. I said, you know, we should try to get like 20 musicians and 20 celebrities. And that's it. Each celebrity will get great writers, will write a story, something heroic that happened at 9-11. You know, we will focus on the positive, not the negative. You know, who did this? Who saved lives? Who made the call? Who did that? And, 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 and really try to share that with everybody as a way to inspire people to donate money. Uh, because that was the, the, the purpose of the show really was not just to entertain, but was to inspire. So the families of all the victims of 9-11, anybody, anybody that was in the towers, anybody that was on that, those planes, anybody that got affected by it at the, when it, the crash in the Pentagon, all of those people's families would benefit as greatly as we possibly could. And setting up the phone lines and the phone system, how to do this, had never been done before at this scope. You know, it's one thing to say you're on a local telethon on Channel 13 or, or Channel 13 or even the Jerry Lewis telethon, but when you're on four networks, which ended up being 64 networks because now everybody wanted to broadcast it, the amount of phone traffic uh, and internet traffic that you have to manage is just astronomical and nobody had done it before. So we had to figure that out, um, which was very, very challenging. Anyway, um, so I pitched uh, the networks that we're going to have, you know, 20 performers. We're going to have 20 celebrities. It's going to be very simple. It's going to be, you know, an empty stage. You know, maybe we'll have some candles on both stages. And it doesn't matter if they're in New York or L.A. If Tom Hanks is here and we want to open with Bruce Springsteen. Actually, we opened with Bruce Springsteen performing. And then we went to Tom Hanks talking. And then we just ping-ponged it. And we, we did inter, intermittently had a few packages that we had. Uh, my cousin, actually, John Klein, who was a CBS News alumni, uh, helped sort of put together. Um, but just a few, you know, we didn't want to overdo it. It was more about the spoken word and about what happened. And I said, you know, nobody gets introduced. Bruce Springsteen's just playing. Tom Hanks is just talking. Even Alicia Keys. I remember Les Moonves. I remember this specifically. Nobody's going to know who she is because at the time she was brand new. But I was convinced that she would be great on the piano. I knew how great she was, how talented she was. I said, it doesn't matter. If we're not introducing Tom Cruise and if we're not putting up a graphic, then nobody. And they finally all agreed. But it was tough. That one was tough. If you watch that show, nobody gets introduced. There's no graphic. There's no nothing. It just happens. And we appeal. We appeal to people to, to, to send in their money. And we got a lot of sponsorship money and things like that. On Tuesday, the next day, somebody walks in my office and wants to talk to me. And I literally, I wasn't even sure who it was at first. And then I realized it's George Clooney. Like walks in, because I'm, I'm now on the, on the offices at uh, CBS, because we actually shot it at the soundstage at CBS. I think Rockstar shooting in the stage and we, we kicked them out so we can have the stage. And I think Clooney had just left Les Moonves' office. He says, go downstairs, Joel's down there. Just go in there and talk to him. And that's when Clooney had the idea. He's like, look, you got this phone bank. Because oh, here's the other problem. Celebrities were calling in droves and I had no more spots. Because it was like by the end of the day, Monday, early Tuesday. I, like, I, you know, I can only, you know, I, they were only going to give me two hours. So I wanted to make sure everything they said was meaningful. I didn't want celebrities having to co- talk, you know, that's, that sort of felt like an award show. 
I didn't want everybody to only talk for 30 seconds or 10 seconds. I wanted everybody to talk for a minute, minute and a half, some, have some oomph to it. Um, so he said uh, it was his idea to say, why don't we try to get like a, a lot of the celebrities who want to help that can't be on the show answer phones. I said, that's a great idea, but the show's Friday. And we've, we're having a difficult time even setting up operators in the middle of the country where they do this for a living. He says, I'm telling you, if we can do this, me and Brad Pitt and, and all, these, all these friends of his will call everybody and we'll pack that and have the greatest celebrity phone bank ever. And people at home will be like, if I have a chance to talk to Brad Pitt, I'm going to call. You know what I mean? Or Jack Nicholson or Al Pacino or Adam Sandler. I mean, all these people that were answering the phones. So we figure out a way to like basically randomly forward calls that were coming into these, the, the headquarters, I guess, in Oklahoma or somewhere in the middle of the country. They would just randomly just call, I mean, a lot would call this phone bank that we set up, like a 30-person phone bank. And there were people answering the phones, taking donations. Operators would stay on the line and take all the information. And it was, uh, it was a brilliant thing that just gave us more star power, but certainly, again, another incentive uh, for people to call in. And that sort of started a, a relationship that I developed over the years with George Clooney. And of course, uh, I became the go-to disaster guy after that. Because uh, I thought this was a once-in-a-lifetime show. I did it. I was so proud of it. I was so honored to be asked to do it. I wanted to like just quit the business after that because you know I, now I had to go back to my silly movie to edit it, and the scope of what we just accomplished, you know, we could never do again. And then five years later, Katrina hits, and they said, "Let's do this again." And another five years later, Haiti earthquake hits. Let's do this again. And granted, those were all special shows too, and I'm I was thrilled again and honored to be the one to do it. But the 9-11 show, the America Tribute to Heroes, there's a reason why it won a Peabody and it won an Emmy and it won a, a Director's Guild Award. It won a Producer's Guild Award. It, it, it won all kinds of visionary awards because it was the first of its kind. And, and uh, I, I just can't believe still to this day that they called me to do it. After you booked the 20 celebrities and 20 musicians, you get home that night and... You sit down, you have your tea or drink or whatever, and you're like, oh, my God. I can't believe I forgot to ask this person. Oh, my God, what am I going to do? That didn't happen. I felt like we had everybody on the show that we wanted. There were a few people we asked that couldn't do it. Like, uh, truthfully, um, the end of that show was um, everybody coming out, at least in L.A., because obviously we couldn't do a finale from both cities. Everybody that was in the L.A. portion came out at the end, and Willie Nelson led everybody in uh, uh, America the Beautiful. But don't tell Willie this, but Ray Charles was the guy I asked first to do it um, because he obviously had recorded an amazing version of it, and I thought that was the perfect way to end the show. Um, but Ray had a paying gig somewhere in the middle of the country, and um, it was uh, not something he was, you know, not that he wasn't into the cause. I, I don't know what went behind that decision, but... He was already on tour somewhere and couldn't be there. So uh, he was one of the people that I was hoping to get um, that I couldn't get. And, uh, but we got Willie Nelson and a bunch of other great people. And the only other, um, not person I tried to get that couldn't get, but I do remember a funny story of getting a call on Tuesday afternoon that week when the show was completely book solid from Trudy Green, who was managing Michael Jackson at the time. And Trudy Green, who's Aerosmith's manager at the time was, and other people's managers has worked for Howard Kaufman Management. Uh, for a long time, uh, she said, uh, Michael would like to do it. I said, um, all right, well, like, I'm not sure if we have a space for Michael. 
uh, because we're we're packed, you know, with with uh, and we can't have any more time. And she's like, but it's Michael Jackson. You understand that this is Michael Jackson. He wants to do the show. You can't turn him down. I said, I said, well, let me let me look at what we have and what we can do, and and let me get back to you. And then I I got on the phone with Katzenberg and all my advisors and and the network executives because I knew that I have to at least let them know because if I turn down Michael Jackson, I don't want them to find out about it and say, Joel, what are you crazy? But they all supported the decision. They looked at our lineup and the type of, you know, uh, the type of low-key, subtle kind of vibe that, that, that we were going for and this inspiring vibe. Not to say Michael couldn't do it, but, you know, nobody had seen Michael do that that much. And, and I think a, there was a lot of concern that Michael might turn it into his thing, you know, as opposed to this everybody, you know, this unselfish, everybody's just doing it because they want to do it. Who knows? We can all speculate. But the truth is there wasn't really a room, any place for him. And I wasn't going to kick somebody off the show who was kind enough to say yes right away. So I had, to, I had to call Trudy and tell her that we don't have room for Michael. She was not happy. Um, and she was angry. But we worked together again about a year later. And she was good. And she understood. And we're, we're, we're good friends. And we work together all the time now. But but again, it's like one of those things that in the moment, you just can't believe that these people are all, someone like Michael Jackson would clamor to do the show, but you had such exceptional talent that already wanted to do the show, there was just no place for him. Your proudest moment in show business. That was my proud, proudest moment. There's nothing can ever compare. Nothing can compare. I mean, doing the show. I'm not, I'm not talking about winning the awards. I'm not talking about the reviews any of the accolades. It's the experience of actually being there while it's happening. Remember, I was directing the show too. I was directing the live LA version of the show. And obviously we had a director in New York and we also had a director in London because we ended, ended up adding London too, because we ended up adding U2 and Sting and they were both in London. But doing the show in the moment, how choked up I was getting and how moved I was getting by the performances and, and literally having to like remind myself that I have to make split second decisions, you know, uh, in two minutes or in 30 seconds or a minute and not get too engrossed in the content of the show, but you couldn't avoid it. And that definitely, when I think about those two hours of that show, it was definitely the proudest time in my career. And as you're directing and people, for those of you that don't know what a director does in one of these things, he's sitting in front of a board with a guy who's a switcher who he's saying, okay, one, one, switch that camera, two, two, we give him a warning. And it's a live broadcast and there might only be a seven second delay or a 15 second delay. But the director is there. He has the big screen of the master shot and all the other cameras up with a little <laughs> masking tape with a one sometimes, unless it's a digital thing. Tell us the moment in the show where you're directing, but you just, you just lost it. You just were like, I'm directing this. I'm actually so yeah. emotional that I don't even know how I'm going to call the show. Neil Young doing Imagine was definitely the moment. It was unbelievable. He, he, he actually called Jimmy Iovine, who was the engineer on the original record, and sort of reproduced the exact arrangement as Lennon's. And um, it was the perfect song lyr lyrically and emotionally. And... Um, I remember, keep in mind, not just with Neil, but with all the performers on that show, we had very little rehearsal. We sort of looked at it. A lot of directors, as you're explaining about what directors do, they get a lot of rehearsal. They script it. They know exactly where this shot's going to be in that shot. I had no script. 
I had nothing. I just had my instincts. I had musical instincts and my love for music. And, uh, and I had to trust my cameramen, many of which, by the way, also were not the people I used to, I'm used to working with because, again, we had one week to put the show together. And there were people like, uh, you know, out of the country, in the middle of the country, whatever, that were not available to be there. So I was working with a lot of crew for the first time, but it didn't matter. Everybody came with their, their A-game. But the Neil Young Imagine performance to this day, you can't not get choked up seeing Neil's face singing it because you could feel his emotion and how he was feeling singing it. And you could feel the lyrics that John Lennon wrote and you could feel the message of that song and how perfect it was at that moment in time. Awesome. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to springboard into something more positive and successful. Probably uh, not making you my manager. (laughs) God, that's the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me. I I definitely screwed up there. (laughs) But let me think of a couple others. Uh, My biggest disappointment, there's been a few. I would say uh, when, I, when I didn't get asked back to do the MTV Movie Awards after doing it, you know, 12 years in a row, 14 out of 15 years, it was my identity. At least I thought it was. You know, I thought this is the show that everybody, this, was, this is the show that put me on the map. This is the show that allowed me to you know, sort of uh, nurture my craft. Uh, and uh, I, I, I obviously spent a lot of time and a lot of effort on uh, making each one of those shows special, trying to reinvent it almost every year. And, you know, a new team came in at MTV, and I'm not blaming them, but they wanted to put their own people in there that they knew. And I'm LA, I'm immersed in my LA thing, and they're in New York base. But I do remember taking a long time recovering from that, because I thought that would be a show I'd be producing forever. I really love that show. There's two shows that I love, and this was one of them. Um, and uh, I remember, I, I, I don't think I've watched the show since. I really just, you know, it's still one of those things because I, I know they've changed the format and it's not the same type of show anymore, but which is good because, uh, you know, I, I prefer it that way than trying to hang on to something that maybe they couldn't execute as well. Uh, but that was, uh, that was definitely a difficult one for me because you, you get, I mean, this is a true story. I mean, this is how loyal I was to the MTV Movie Awards. The year American Idol started, I met with Simon Fuller. And then I met with Mike Darnell at Fox. Mike Darnell was the head of reality at Fox. And they were looking for uh, who's going to be the showrunner for the American premiere of what was Pop Idol in, in England of American Idol. I supposedly was their first choice. I sat down with Darnell. This was like in March or April. And I'm doing the movie awards that June. And, and he says, I want you to do it. And I said, great. I'm ready to go in, you know, in June or July. He says, no, no, no. We want it on the air in July. What are you doing? I said, I'm doing the movie awards. He says, well, can you get out of it? I said, I might be able to get out of it, but I don't want to get out of it because it's my show. It's my baby. I'm not saying everything happens for a reason. I'm just saying I turned down the opportunity to to helm what became one of the longest running successful music series in the history of American television because I was so like, I got to do the movie awards. This is my baby. I have to do it. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to piss off MTV. And I don't want to not, I don't want to miss out on some really funny short film that I'm going to do this year. Probably ended up being for the better because I probably would have gotten fired anyway because I probably wouldn't have seen eye to eye with uh, the execs in charge. But that's just a side note. I know when you get that call, that's when you go back to MTV and you say, listen, 
I need to have a clause in my contract that says I have the first right of refusal. If you decide that you want somebody else to do it, I have the right of refusal that I do it and I get to choose to go out. Again, I did not, you, I did not uh, hire you as my manager. And if I had, that would have happened. There's a lot of things that are crazy that you don't think about that people don't do. And before the last question, I'll just share with you one of the things that you just don't understand. For instance, business affairs at Comedy Central. Okay. You have a roast. You can feel that things are starting to go well when you started them. You giving these people the opportunity to do the roast, a lot of unknown people. Wouldn't it make sense to put this clause with one or two sentences? Comedy Central has the right of first refusal to do an hour special with you if they choose within 24 months after the roast airs for no less than this amount of money. And a second option for a second special for this amount of money. And a third option on a third special for this amount of money. Don't you think that the people who hadn't done anything, like Whitney Cummings, would have signed that? Or Amy Schumer. Or Amy Schumer. I think they might have. But again, I don't get involved with the contracts and and, and the long-term stuff that Comedy Central does. I, I do agree with you that... They should have done that, and I'm sure they're doing that going forward more so than they were before, but they have their way of doing business, which has been very successful, and they have uh, great relationships, and I, I think the network is very successful and have had lots of hits over the last several years. So, And they're incredibly successful, and all I'm saying is like two sentences from a legal perspective that any young comic like Amy Schumer coming in who just had gotten off fourth place on Last Comic Standing, That's right. no one had offered her an hour. Why wouldn't you agree with that? Any manager in the world would agree to at least one. They'd be happy with it. Now, on Saturday Night Live, they're eight-year contracts. They call for three movies at different prices and things like that. And, of course, you're going to sign the contract whether you want to or not. Right. But the roast breaks stars like Saturday Night Live breaks stars. And I just think that that's something that, if they haven't already, it would be something great for them to consider anyway. Last question, I promise. You've known so many artists and so many executives at so many different levels. What advice do you have for the young artist that's coming up in the world to try to get to the next level? And what advice do you have for the young producer that almost takes a job in Boston or wherever, or the young director or writer or executive producer like yourself? to get to the level where you're at? I mean, I think, I think it's the same advice that uh, the same advice applies to the artist or the, um, the young producer. It's, it's uh, if you're really passionate about doing something, about your craft, about your art, whether it's in front of the camera or behind the camera, you've got to make that commitment. You know, you got to, you can't rely on relatives or friends to, uh, open the door necessarily, you have to, uh, you have to make your own opportunities. I think, uh, the people that have made their own opportunities, uh, you know, I think are, are, are the ones that get rewarded the highest, you know, they're the ones that work the hardest and, 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 and see the fruits of their labor, uh, you know, rewarded, uh, to me, it's like, 
I, I, you know, there is, there is, um, there is something to be said that sometimes you need someone to help you give you an opportunity, but to get that opportunity, you have to show your work ethic and your belief and your commitment into what you do and your knowledge, you know? So for someone coming out of college, uh, you know, who, uh, doesn't know anybody in the business will become a production assistant, become an intern, become uh, someone in the mailroom. And then when I was in the mailroom, I didn't tell you this because the story was going too long. I didn't know when I was going to get out. And what happened was the guy who ran the mailroom was taking his vacation. And the guy who had seniority over me, who was supposed to run the mailroom when the, the mailroom head goes on vacation, quit. Next thing you know, I'm in charge of the mailroom. What did I do? I ran that mailroom like nobody's ever run that mailroom. I have no idea how I did it, but I figured it out. And by the end of that second week of running the mailroom, Mr. Treef, the office manager, was like, I got to get you out of the mailroom. You're good. Like you, you got to find when those moments, you seize the moment. You've heard that expression. We all have. You got to seize the moment and you got to deliver and you can't be lazy. You got to work hard and you got to be committed and, 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 and you got to, you know, you got to be sort of an unstoppable force, but you got to do it in a way that, you know, has people rooting for you, not against you. Joel Gallon, you are a force of nature today. Thank you so much. I can't believe you dedicated so much time to this. It means a lot to me. I know your son was sick. And he probably hasn't eaten. <laughs> He's probably like, when's daddy coming home? He's supposed well, to pick me up food on the way home. But yeah. I'm, I'm, sure, uh, I'm sure we figured something out. Well, daddy's coming home now. Thank you so much for doing this, man. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. And uh, maybe we'll uh, do something together soon. Let us pray. You know, Sir Paul McCartney, David Bowie, Mick Jagger, cats. <laughs> okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website IKilledJFK.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on Angela Menard from Southampton, Massachusetts. My old stomping grounds. Congratulations, Angela. Also, I figure... I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. Okay, landing on Love is Purple, July 16, 2013. Heading reads, My Dream Came True, five stars. They write, I love BK. I still think the best episodes of More Stories are the ones with Barry. It only makes sense that he should have his own podcast. He has interesting info on showbiz, and he's a great storyteller. Go, Barry. Well, thank you, Love is Purple. Congratulations. 
As always, this is another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You'll get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going for. Life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave. Down in the valley, a fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.